The Brandon Peters Show may contain explicit language and detailed plot points. For more information on the show, stay tuned to the end of the episode. are now recording and this is out now with aaron and abe i am aaron and abe is uh not here this week but this is a film podcast where abe and i normally discuss new movies weekly however every now and then like the special bonus episodes whether it's one of our fun commentary tracks or something with different but this is our commentary track for august 2022 and <laughs> what feels like a a challenge set up a lifetime ago is finally being delivered upon this month as we are talking kiss me deadly the Ooh. 1955 film noir from director Robert Aldrich, uh, starring t- uh, Ralph Meeker as <laughs> as Mike Hammer, uh, <laughs> and uh, we got we got a lot going on here. So let's get to our guests. Joining me to discuss and commentate—that's a word—over "Kiss Me Deadly." We have from Wise to Blue and host of the Brandon Peters Show. His gun is quick. It's Brandon Peters. Uh, though I have to say goodbye. Remember me. Also joining us from the Milky Way Blues, Vengeance is his. It's Yancey Burns. Hey, guys. Glad to be here tonight. Excited. And from Forbes, he's only here one lonely night. It's Scott Mendelson. Is that a what's it in your pocket? Are you just happy to see me? <laughs> That's a great what's it. I, di- I didn't sing that because I didn't want this to get flagged. So I said <laughs> it straight. Those are all uh, Mickey Spillane novels. Hi, guys. How are you all doing this evening? I'm doing okay. Good, good. Glad to have you all here. I'm excited. I'm excited to talk about Kiss Me Deadly. Uh, Scott, you are responsible for this. You, you, I was bluffing. You, you, you made a jest <laughs> on, on Twitter that people are talking too much about other things, and you'd be happy to talk about a film like Kiss Me Deadly. And little do you know, I pay attention to Twitter, and I said, you know what, I would be happy to do that as well. And then you made the noble claim of, hey, book a commentary and we'll be here. Guess what? We're here I, almost a year it after. It was you lying. <laughs> so, well, now we're going to like the, your audience, the people that follow you. And you have you have like a few like you have dozens of followers uh, that we're going to we're going to put you to the test uh, to see if you can keep up with us. Because apparently we're noir experts now um, to talk about <laughs> Kiss Me Deadly for the next hour and 40 or so minutes. This is going to be fun, though, because I think we all really like this movie. Um, mm-hmm. and, so there's pl- and there's plenty for us to go over in the realm of film noir, let alone Aldrich films and other things of this nature. So that's what we're going to do. For those listening to this commentary, if you're planning to watch the film Kiss Me Deadly and follow along with us, uh, all you have to do is pause the film uh, at the MGM Lion Roaring. On the, we, for three of us, we have the Criterion Disc, so that's about 15 seconds in. So if you plan to watch that way, just try to time it to the opening logos of the MGM Lion. If you plan to just listen to listen, you're cool. You just gotta, you know, just just keep listening. That's all you, you know, while, while you're on your run and you've somehow decided to select Kiss Me Deadly commentary track, uh, that's, uh, <laughs> that's all you have to do from here. You just keep running and listening to this. So, I think we're all good. It looks like Yancey's struggling. Is it hammer time? <laughs> Stop. Oh, no, I've got some hammer time. Uh, <laughs> why is Brandon wearing the pants? Twit. 
<laughs> all right. We all good? We all ready? <laughs> all right. Three, two, one, go. All right. Kiss me deadly. No, thanks. This is fun because this is a film that none of us presumably have seen in theaters for the first time. Um, we almost I had one, I Pete, but Peter didn't travel. come. <laughs> well, before we even before we even talk about when we first saw this movie, because I am curious about that, let's talk about just how this thing opens because it has a cold open. It has this great, like, just thrilling open where Cloris Leachman in her first film uh, just arrives on the scene wearing a trench coat, just like panicked and like trying to flag a car down. This is like, I I, I can't think of a noir that opens like this drastically. Um, I mean. I don't want to sit here and say that this film was the first movie to do X or Y or Z, because I'm sure that's not true. Sure. But I do know, even just from doing some research, that this was a film that was a trendsetter in a lot of very small ways Mm -hmm. in terms of both what it was and in terms of what wasn't being made and what choices weren't being done when this film was made. Well, stylistically, too, like they they claim that so like this. This kind of came and went, but it is apparently inspired French New Wave, which then inspired yes. stuff back here, but it originated from <laughs> claiming this. This is the key um, movie for, for, for those, for Truffaut and Godard. This is like the key. Mm-hmm. This is towards the end of the film noir cycle, but it's, yeah. it's a few years before the French would name it film noir. And, 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 uh, and yeah, this is the stylistic abruptness, though, even the way that the credits run sort of backwards here. Reverse like, Star Wars. Yeah, I love Here's this. Star Wars. Yeah, the <laughs> backwards credits, too. That even that, that's the kind of thing that would have really excited those guys because it's such a it's such a strange and it's a sort of usually you can listen to her moaning and breathing for 45 seconds mm-hmm. in, in the passenger seat. It, a very strange way to. To and you know it's off your like what, what's going on credits are going backwards who's this meeker ralph guy <laughs> well and, and during this and a lot of scenes in this movie since we're in this driving credits thing that i noticed uh, like back in the day i know they did the, the projection thing with drive but like driving like even just a normal drive felt dangerous as hell back in old movies and this was mostly real driving this was yeah. not the back projection whatever yeah. It's a big part of the um, film, the, the use of the yeah. cars and the speed and whatnot. Um, like it's, it's just, it's and really... Including these credits, there's a certain credit. Okay, when, I first saw, when I first saw this in, in film school during a detective class, spoiler, that's when I first saw it, it almost felt like, I don't want to say it felt like a horror film, but it kept me on edge and in a way that, you know, I didn't feel with, say, the Maltese Falcon. It's you know, paced, there's a certain creepy undertone. Way different, yeah. There, yeah. there very much is, and we'll get to that much later on in this film. As far as like this movie has a jump scare in it that I did yeah. not see coming when I first saw it, but yeah, it does have this kind of yes, it you know it classifies as noir, but it's certainly like toys of other genres. Just given the time period it's coming in, the lateness of it in the noir I period, a little bit, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's coming at the you know into the Cold War age and into the nuclear age. It has just elements that it's t- tinkering on there, and you obviously oh. you have directors that are leaning in on it like you mentioned you know the, the french directors but also you know you have yeah, alex cox and uh, tarantino and even like richard kelly uses this heavily in um southland tales so it's it's like there's among the many other you know people that have referenced this movie right? there's the lost ark references right movie. i mean there's like so many things that call out, <laughs> i mean call this is this that kind of like punk rock experimental that if someone just randomly picked up an old movie to watch and i would be like 
unamused, but be, but you gotta be like, realize like, no, this was insanity back then. Like this is yeah. not how everything was. This is this change. It, you know, it may have done it in a, in a more subtle way through the industry, but it changes, th- changes things. It, 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 it does. And it's it, like, it's Robert Aldrich coming in 1950. So yeah, like this is pretty much the end of the like film noir period. And so it, it's the kind of film that can capitalize off of all the stuff that was done beforehand to be like, well, what if we did this this way and made things differently? And it's, and it works while still being like mm-hmm. this, you know, funky adaptation of a Mickey Spillane. No, it's like, it's got a lot working for it that just makes it stand out in its own way. Right. And, and it, it's, it, it's, Sorry, go ahead, Aaron. I was just going to say, it, it, like, I can understand why among the, you know, the many films of this genre that came out, regardless of which ones are classic, which ones are just, you know, throwaway noir. It's I can understand why, you know, it has maintained a certain legacy. It's in what the National Library of Congress at this uh-huh. point, like it has a lot, even though, you know, just kind of came and went like Scott, you said it it's held on over all these years for good reason. Well, I think too, like if I were to recommend a film noir to somebody like this would be at the top of the list because of the there's like a heightened theatrics uh, oh. aspect to this that I think could just play well for a first timer. Um, and like I said before, it's paced really well for a film from this era uh and of the genre like it 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 moves it's got some really like out there things that happen throughout and people play things a bit bigger which i think can help if as a gateway uh very much so it's always been a pretty go-to top five like what's like exactly what you just said noir you Mm -hmm. you know you can it's easy to say sunset boulevard double indemnity maltese falcon this one just fits right in there i think though as far as you know it has you know, it doesn't have a bogey, doesn't have necessarily some of the bigger like elements that you get some right some of the more obvious noir classics, doesn't make them bad at all. But it's still like it just has the right kind of vibe where you can easily like find yourself enthralled in what's going on. Cause like yeah. it, like we said that it started out, it just gets going right away. Yeah, this they those fit the stereotype. This one almost feel I mean, I don't know if exploitation's the word for it, but it kind of goes in those like, well, let's it leans on it like let's as push as, like, everything that happens in these. Let's push them to a it, it feels mean, like even for a B movie, it feels like a B movie as far mm-hmm. as like what it's doing. I mean, even when it came out, from what I you know, what I've read up, you know, the 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 critical reception, while generally positive, it did feel it did feel like a film that was trying to be quote unquote extreme for its era. Yeah, it's it's got um, a lot of like nihilistic claims yeah. to it, and, it, and it's it's uh, a meaner movie. Yeah. <laughs> like we're I mean, watching, our, we're watching our protagonist Cloris is an asshole. He is, mm-hmm. and look, Cloris Leach right here. She's going to be murdered horribly in a few minutes. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh yeah, it's not, and, a, it's, not a, it's not a nice movie. I, I will say something that's intrigued me, which is that a lot of the stuff that sets this movie apart. And I'm assuming people have seen this if they're going to listen to a commentary track from us about Kiss Me Deadly. But, you know, you know, in terms of the horrors of the nuclear age and stuff, that was them getting around censorship issues of the Hays Code because yeah. they couldn't quite do, you know, drug dealing mafia people. Hmm. So they sort and of. And that never know, changed. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, <laughs> I don't know which ending I saw of this picture when I first saw it in film school because I was, you know, 20 some years ago. But I do know that up until the 90s, the film ended slightly before the quote unquote official mm-hmm. version was supposed to end. And a lot of the scholarship on this film about how it resented, represented a certain, you know, doomsday scenario, nuclear Holocaust, blah, blah, blah. That was because they kind of put the wrong ending on the print. Right. We'll get um, to that. Cause it's all, it's, I, I, I always think of myself as like, which one's like a creepier ending. Cause it's not like yeah. the actual ending of this movie 
has a you know a, a more discernible fallout. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's not you know, like, it's weird. It's it's a strange yeah. example where depending on how you want to look at it, where the theatrical ending is slightly bleaker and darker than the yeah. quote unquote director's cut ending. Sure, right. slightly. Yeah, yeah. Somebody mysteriously cut out eighty seconds yeah. from the the main print of this movie. Nobody knows who. And yeah, cutting out those eighty seconds that made it look like the main characters also perish at the end. In, yeah. in, the, in the cut that's now been circulating for 25 years or whatever, they, they sort of stumble out into the ocean. They're still alive. I guess it's a little less apocalyptic, but it's still. Yeah, like they're, there's still like some terrible dirty bomb going off in the, yeah. the room next door. Basically, <laughs> it, It's like the reverse of what you normally have. Normally would be like the direct. Oh, they forced us to keep them alive in here. Yes. But we had this. It, it's like the reverse yeah. of that. Yeah, for some reason that made well, more sense to them. Like, but they every... still probably have radiation poisoning well, and might have to die after that. So. He's ain't getting his PI license back. So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like if it want if it wanted to lean really into sci-fi, it would have went because it has the the end come up. Then it should have had question mark. Yeah. Just the black. <laughs> yeah. Well, here we go. The feet. Yeah. This is creepy. Yeah. Like, oh this, yeah, this is terrifying. Like, like just in the way it's like happening, like just outside of him, and he's unconscious. My camera's unconscious a lot in this movie, by the way. He gets yeah. knocked down like over he's and over. He's not again. very good at, well, I would say he's not good at his job. He's very good at his job. He's not good at this kind of detective. He's okay. In this movie, he's okay at his job. Like yeah. this, like he's the books, as I'm aware, he's like a good P, like a good sleuth. Yes. Where yeah. in, like in this movie, which is very much not the book, he's yeah. like sleazier. You oh, know, yeah. He's, well, he's, he's good, but he's an oaf. Like he's just like, yeah, oh, yeah. 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 And the and like and the women love him, but they also make fun of him. Like yeah. it's, it's a really like this movie. I, I was listening to the Criterion's commentary for this, which you should maybe listen to before this one. And, oh, um, scandal! <laughs> um, they're describing Criterion this as like, basically, fuck itself. They're describing this as basically a feminist film, and it's like I can see why. Like women dominate the kind of the narrative of this story and guide a lot of the plot line. Like I get where that comes from, uh, but it is interesting because Mike Amber is such a such a dick <laughs> for people to be mm-hmm. you have to follow along watching it again in preparation for this because you know i hadn't seen it in 20 some years i figured i should watch it again i i gotta you know and again i don't want to say one you know one inspired the other but i got a lot of very very you know dr no sean connery james bond vibes from him in that he's a brute and he takes a certain pleasure in being a, you know, doing violence, and and he's not a hero. He just happens to be on the side of right in this particular occasion. That is very um, true. Yeah, very good. yeah. And in the same way that you know, for all the shit that the early Bond films get for their, you know, female characters or whatever, you know, when you watch those movies, most of the women are either throwing themselves at Bond because they just want to fuck, or they're you know enemy agents that just want to murder him. So mm-hmm. it's it's a similar dynamic where yes he gets laid a lot but it's not because he's you know it's not because he's taking advantage of anybody. Well, there's a great part in Doctor No where he's with the evil uh, the the evil agent at her place and they're like he knows she knows they don't yeah. admit to each other but she's got to keep him there and he needs to keep her and it's yeah it's it's kind of it's really dirty and stuff because it's done in such a more clean way yeah um, because of the times but yeah. Uh, yeah, that's these that, these angles and stuff, you didn't yeah. get those in a lot of film yeah, noir. It really can't. Yeah, it keeps us off balance. You got stuff like what uh, was what year was Seconds when that came out? Is that Seconds of 60? No, um, mm, 66. So okay. that's still a ways away, but I'm just trying to think of stuff that would have some more odd or different. Yeah, like the, the can, you know, the Cantoner Dutch angles 
is mm-hmm. is heavily a thing in noir as I think some some expect. I think like doesn't yeah. like Wells use it quite a bit like in some things. Um, German expressionism stuff. <laughs> like uh, like I because I think uh, was it like late is it like Lady from Shanghai? Doesn't that have like a number of like tricky shots just by nature yeah. of that movie in general? Yeah. Let's just... uh, so before we move too far, and this is what this is um. Uh, Maxine Cooper, right? This is her debut film as well. Um, before we get too far, let's go. Let's go over when we first saw this. Scott, you first saw this in college. Is that what you're saying? Yes, I took a, a detective film class in my junior year of college. <laughs> yes, no, no. Um, <laughs> and you know, it was sort of a mix of of you know Agatha Christie type detective stuff with you know film noir, hard boiled post World War II detective pictures. And detective books. We did, you know, read a few Agatha Christie's here and there. And this, you know, I, I very much enjoyed the class. I liked everything that I saw. But this one kind of, you know, it stood out as, you know, this is, you know, again, the, the vibe I got from this, this film is weirdly scary. You know, it had a certain horror tinge to it that I was, certainly was not expecting. Yeah. And I knew that it had a reputation. I kind of sort of knew the whole briefcase thing and how it inspired Pulp Fiction or whatever. But watching it, and especially, you know, doing the reading in terms of what was normal, what was not, yada, yada, yada. Like, oh, I can see why this was a cult classic eventually. Because this really feels like, you know, pushing the edge of what you could get away with and the kind of stories you could tell even back then. Um, so, yeah, it, 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 it was, you know, it was, I very much enjoyed it and i i while i absolutely would recommend it in terms of film noir i would almost package it with a couple more traditional ones first just so a newbie understands what what toys it's playing with um but anyway yancy how about you when did you first see kiss me deadly um i would have seen this probably 99 or 2000 um whenever it was that mgm put out a sort of new iteration of it with both versions i think it was a laser disc mm-hmm. probably saw it in 99 uh, at the behest of probably a review from mike clark in the usa today one of my heroes um probably raved about it in his column and i went out and bought the laser disc um the first time i saw kiss me deadly yeah what was your impression when you saw it oh it's a terrific movie you know it's it's um it's funny you were saying uh somebody mentioned uh you know, it's towards the end of what they traditionally talk about is the film noir cycle, which wasn't named as such. Nobody knew they were making film noir movies. These were just melodramas. They were referred to as melodramas. That title, the, the very idea of film noir wasn't coined until the cycle was over. This is about three years before the end of it. Um, and you can tell that the cycle is almost over because even though it's not really a, a recognized genre at the time, Ralph Meeker is such an unappealing hero in this yeah. got almost no good qualities at all and the, the you know and yet you are completely bound up in his story and you as the viewer can identify with him even though he's a sleaze bag that that's a long way from 1945 which is when the genre sort of recognizes having started with the Maltese falcon and double indemnity yeah more uh, conflicted characters and existential crisis characters and yeah, it's just, I, I always thought it was a way around the Hayes code which was which said that crime couldn't pay real but, real quick real quick uh wano hornandez is an idiot he just came in vavavoom who is just a delightful character <laughs> i like to oh, say yeah. a lot <laughs> this may not be true but i was when i was watching this other i, I had the impression as i had before that when you want to present a character who is not particularly corrupt or 
oftentimes these sort of outsized immigrant characters in noir movies, and there are a couple in here. There's the guy later who's carrying the thing with the band with the band around his head. They mm-hmm. almost always represent a, a sort of uncorrupted version of of the American dream, which at this point, even though this is charging at a World War II, this country was the best, had the best vibes it ever had. Even people on the lowest rung, all boats were lifted during that era. There was just more money and more prosperity. And yet there was also somehow this 10 years of movies where there's so much pessimism, so much negativity, so much fatalism. And is, is it connected to the fact that the World War II was connected to the, the the dawning of this idea of the, the atomic bomb being this actual existential threat, where all of a sudden there was a thing that could kill us all that didn't exist before this. I don't know how much people thought about that by 1955, or how much people thought about what had happened in the Holocaust in Germany. A lot of that stuff was still we were still just rolling off those good vibes. But, I, but I do think it's what subconsciously or not. I do think Aldrich is smart enough to know what he's doing with this. I do think absolutely. This is definitely yeah. like he must have been reading the articles himself ten years before when that uh-huh. A bomb first went off. But this is presenting the A bomb as as a, a horror, sort of a horror. You know, a horror, like a, a, it's almost like a. HP Lovecraft interdimensional entity that can fit inside. Yeah, the way it's presented, I mean, we'll get everybody. There was nothing like that. You you real quick, you mentioned you mentioned like you know having these like immigrant characters and what have you. Like something I I that's interesting about my camera of all the things of all his vices, he's not racist. Like he's he's nice to the people. (laughs) He's very nice to the people of color in this film, which there are a few. He's the hero. He's supposed he. If you look at, but he's. I mean, he's a jerk. Like he's not great to everybody. Pal and murder my sweet. I think that's also my camera. Yeah, he's also a cynical detective hero, but he's not quite a jerk. He's still kind of graceful. He's still sort of handsome. Ralph Meeker in here is just he's the guy who would have played a thug in in. in I'm sure I'm sure he did in earlier film yeah. noir. Yeah, <laughs> I guess that the women like him, but he's he does nothing about this character that I want to grow up to be like this. Mike Hammer. No one would ever say that, but you still are happy to go with him on this hundred minute. A journey into this, this I, which his cause is just his cause is just, but also, I mean, I the, camera's, the camera's following him. I mean, that's, that's <laughs> really what it comes down to. <laughs> it's the, we're choosing, like, we're not going after like his blonde detective friend who seems like a really cool actor. That guy, by the way, I like his just his general look in this movie. Oh, yeah, yeah, well, just by he, defa- but just by having blonde hair, I think by default makes him like just seem interesting. Like, you might not have canted ankles and you like you got all kinds of things going for you. Well, I mean, Meeker also he comes off tall and broad shoulders, more yeah. like an athlete than he would a detective. So it's uh-huh. kind of a weird spin, especially with all the guys that were being cast in these roles at the time, too. So he's yeah, he's a bruiser he's off like, just yeah. from yeah, <laughs> from appearance. This is, this is starting to fall, at least out of fashion in this country. Whatever that initial burst of cynicism was, by the late 50s, you don't see these kind of movies again. And whoever, Scott, whoever mentioned James Bond, you guys are both talking about it. I've always thought that. That's totally the case. James Bond is a post-noir film hero because he's not a hero. He's not heroic. He's He'll kill you. If it's if a blunt instrument, <laughs> but you still identify with him and he's still the hero, which is a major change in the kind of movies narratives. Because before that, Humphrey Bogart might have been kind of a shady character, but he wasn't he wasn't an amoral killer like James Bond. And James Bond, I think, is spun out of this sort of noir era, you know. I mean, like a Bogart sure. might be driven to that one kill in the third act that he does, but that's about right. People talk about, you know, neo, you know, film noir period. They talk about the neo-noir period. Basically, after the late 50s, if, you, if, if it's a film noir, you call it a neo-noir. But really, 
eventually when we talk about like new Hollywood and the seventies, it's really just, it's, it, it's this kind of thing on a much broader scale where you can make movies that are downbeat movies that show the real corruption and complications of the world. Chinatown obviously is a, is a perfect example of a new Hollywood movie that that's also, in fact, he gets the same job that Ralph Meeker has, right? He just takes pictures of uh, people cheating on their wives and husbands, right. And sells them, but you know, he's not even doing it. He's not even a detective in a, in a noble sense. Well, it's you know? funny because like anytime you do a neo-noir at this point, like it either has to be a period film. And so, but then they're generally a PI or something by default there, or they're just straight up and, you know, an anti-hero slash villain. Think of like Jake Gyllenhaal and Nightcrawler. Like they're just, they're never, <laughs> there's not, there's no like, you know, there, there's no one that's like Walter Neff in a neo-noir these days. It's like, ah, I could go either way. I want to be good, but what if I did this? Like that's hey, rarely yeah. a thing when it comes along. Walter no, Neff, a little bit of a of an idiot, and people yeah, don't. That's the thing. You're not allowed to write a character that's an idiot anymore. That's the lead. People not not today for sure. You get you know early <laughs> '90s. You can still get that a little bit. You get what you just watched. Um, Palmetto. Uh, Paul Met- Palmetto's a good example. What's it? The Last Seduction with uh, with oh, God with uh, I mean, obviously Fiorentino's guiding that film along. But who's the guy? It's, it's what's his name? It's um, Peter Berg. director Bill right? Pullman. Peter Berg. Is it Paul? Peter Berg, the director. Peter Berg. Yeah, he's he's like oh. a doofus in that. Way. Bill Pullman is like the ex-husband is trying to get. Oh, back. Right, right, right. Yeah. He, he's Sorry, playing to the Bill Pullman in the nineties role, ex-husband, ex-boyfriend. Got it. He's like, "Fuck here. you! I'm gonna save the world." <laughs> You like me now, you sons of bitches. Um, yeah. if, and, but again, if it, but if it's a, but if it's a period film, if it's L.A. Confidential, or if it's Double the Blue Dress, they're PIs. Like that's, that's the only that's the route you take. But if you think about most movies, most movies will now have not maybe not most maybe not the Marvel movies, but most movies will have a certain element of moral uncertainty in them. Sure, yeah, and that's really just an effect of of, of this period. Like you couldn't hold back the time. It's also a big the, the stuff that we're seeing in film noir, obviously has. It's also a big influx of European directors like Billy Wilder and bringing in their sort of old world bad vibes with them, especially being chased out of World War, out of Germany by Hitler or Austria by Hitler. I guess the directors that do get it, that are informed by this and do it their own way, is like Tarantino or the Coens, where they have idiots at the center of their movies. They have Travolta Mm -hmm. in Pulp Fiction or they have, uh, what's his face in Blood Simple? Uh, everyone in Burn After Reading. Everyone, yes, everyone, in Burn. <laughs> <laughs> or the, or even the dude to a very extent. Yeah, like, yeah. I mean, there, the, the, is it just seeing that post world? But I don't know if he makes noir movies. No, I wouldn't say. I wouldn't necessarily yeah. say he's making noir, but he's certain. But his influences are very clear. Like yeah. he's certainly taking B crime dramas from the fifties, among other things, yeah. and incorporating those kind of characteristics. You look at like the the Butch segment in Pulp Fiction, and you can see that as as a sequel to the 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 uh, the setup. <laughs> I'm curious to me why what was it that made these movies popular and successful that were that are so openly cynical and fatalistic how did that why was that a strain because, because i i think I, there's varying reasons but i i oh. think because the western was so popular it's the alternative that, it's yeah. the, exactly it's an alternative yeah. choice that digs into stuff that's grounded ish because it's set now and it deals with like shadier people and it just feels it, I don't. I think it feels like riveting to see something like that on a big screen because you're watching this like this you know grimy B movie as opposed to the latest John Wayne western. Like there's just something there. I think. Well, that also, also, it was in Anthony Mann's movie, this, uh, the Naked Spur, from about four years before this. 
And that's a Western with Jimmy Stewart. Very noirish, psychological, bloody. Yeah, there's West- plenty of Western noir. I mean, you have. Well, yeah, yeah, you're getting the, you're starting to get the deconstructionist Westerns. Sure. Like Westerns are period. They're set in the old West, but a noir can be said anywhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, well, you know, I, I, more Westerns. Do, do you, you think? Know? Well, I was going to say, do you think, too, like the, the, the 70s filmmakers we all love and stuff and like loving these movies and being inf- the people influenced, do you think at the time in their age range that these were like, you know, adult movies that they really wanted to see because they were for adults or they were the ones they could sneak and yes. see something they weren't. And that's why they were so attractive to such a, a certain age probably range. saw these movies on public television, you know, and in the theater, but I make sure of that. And plus, these are like double bills, right? So these would be the B movies that play next for a lot of these things, right? Well, yeah. And in terms of commercial consumer appeal, I mean, putting aside the politics and the socioeconomic whatever, I mean, these were films that were dirty and scuzzy and had hot women being sexy and brutal violence and just from a certain taboo era. You know, if you wanted stuff that was somewhat subversive and just extreme content this was probably the closest you were going to get outside of outright mm-hmm. horror pictures and that's when you're referencing just the like the oh, ultimate sure. b versions of these movies right there are yeah. you know it's not like the, the you know the key ones didn't have you know big stars in them but you know yeah, having right. having well, having ha- having you know like yeah, having, was an a picture exactly ha- having yeah. having bogart having cagney having ed robinson like i Cagney's <laughs> those, are those are gangster movies those don't really count as noirs because those are in a Cagney or Robertson a Robinson movie, they're the bad guy. There's a good guy. The good guy survives. They die. Yeah. So some of them skirt the line where it's like it's more of a crime gangster movie as opposed to a straight up film noir. But like, but it just evolved. It, it, after the code, the smart, the smarts of the filmmakers evolved. And you could if, if crime has to pay, it doesn't mean you can't tell a story about a tragic figure who gets involved in crime yeah. has to pay for it in a way that reminds you of the way everybody has to pay in life for smaller things. Well, there, if there's one what made it. Because you talk about the taboo things that that Scott was talking about, the things that are sort of in these movies that these movies offered. The biggest taboo to me is still the the, the existential downerism of so many of them. Yeah, no, for sure. Yeah. Even for us, why is it appealing to anybody to see something that is so sort of stares into the moral abyss a bit and is not comforting? Yeah, it's funny that those that those are also appealing. That's why noir is so addictive because it's like yeah. what what in the mainstream was causing this kind of depression almost. You know, it's certainly a reflection it, of the times, obviously, as well. Yancy as as brought up a really good point here that like, you know, the gangster movies not being noir movies. It's almost there's a, there's a people that, that aren't in the know or from a side want to sound like an expert, like like not all Italian films, horror films are giallo, um, right. but they see like, oh, well, it's black and white. Check. Guys are wearing hats. From this era. <laughs> yep. Guys wearing hats, pinstripe suits. It's Cr- a crime has happened. There's yeah. a lot of blinds all over the place. Yep, <laughs> it's noir. Like real, real, I started, real quick. Yeah, real quick because I I'll dare to talk about something happening on screen. Uh, this <laughs> this is what counts as an action set set piece right here. I really like this this little foot chase. Oh, this is excellent. Chase. Yeah, it's like a slow chase. But I like the details that lead up to this. Right, Meeker. He clocks Popcorn a guy that he clocks oh, a guy that's salt. following him behind, and he prepares. Right, he prepares the way he can because yeah. for whatever reason, this mic camera does not use a gun, which is absurd for API in this kind of movie he, <laughs> he doesn't use a gun at all in this movie which is uh, hilarious if you look at the you know some you of the marketing cannons? yeah <laughs> cannons yeah. why bring yeah, a gun he's the reverse of bogart who's always holding with like two pistols and never uses a bit uses one once maybe in a, but on the but anyway yeah he, you just he, got nailed he, by the hammer exactly. <laughs> well he just got 
that beat right to there, death by bashing his head against a wall. Yeah. Yeah. And there was a quick shot in there of Mike Hammer or, or of uh, Ralph Meeker kind of grunting as he's doing it. That is so noir to have a moment of someone looking like they're getting off on beating yeah. someone to death. You see that in so many noirs, that moment of sadism. It's the exorcist. <laughs> well, this, this was the, the right, yeah. smile that sort of reminded me of Connery. Good That's what I started right thinking of. Oh, yeah, for sure. This like, is this, yeah. this, this, this only a Bond moment we right there. From we didn't mind that dark streak of <laughs> knocking a guy down. The, po- the power of hammer compels you. <laughs> <laughs> like this well, version I, where there's one-liners every two seconds. <laughs> <laughs> well, he really is too legit to quit. That's kind of a running scene. Oh. But there, but that is a good bit as far as he, he prepares for himself because he crime story, you get no him. glory. He's gonna grab popcorn. He's gonna like look in the mirrors, know where he is at, mm-hmm. beat this guy up all the way to another part of L.A. because they're filmed in two different locations where that fight happened. I just love that popcorn <laughs> in the face works like it's some like, acid. It's I mean, it's surprising. I wouldn't want to get hot and buttery popcorn. For one thing, it it's, pre- it's it's made on the street, so it's hot popcorn. That's uh, true. He doesn't leave a movie at the beginning of that scene. He's just eating it, popcorn. Right? It's that oily butter, nineteen fifty-five. Yeah, it's yeah, great shot is. right there. Yeah, like things by watching. I learned by watching this that back then they used to keep their registration on the on the on the gear shit uh, you know has his registration wrapped around his steering wheel and that's how Clarence mm. Leach knows his name I'm like oh I guess that's how they used to do that yeah ah, they probably didn't have, I don't think they have glove boxes back then it's a weird <laughs> so, like, it's a weird Roku box on top of the TV yeah. oh my god <laughs> early James Franco performance <laughs> yes yes he put on some weight <laughs> Brandon, when did you oh, first see KSW? As Johan Estevez, yeah, James. <laughs> oh, I first. I, so I'm. I'm. I guess in comparison, I'm relatively newbie to this because I saw it for the first time probably in the last ten years. Um, I was a late bloomer to the Kiss Me Deadly game. So, um, but yeah, no, it was really uh, like hooked me, um, and I, I, it felt further ahead than its contemporaries when I first saw it. And like I, I've said before, the pace and just the extravagance, like I, we talk about like some of the filmmakers, it's influenced, but there's, you know, being a purveyor, uh, this recent watch when I did before this, uh, being a purveyor of, you know, the Italian horror directors like Fulci and uh, Martino Argento. Uh, I feel like they by some of the, some of the characters in this feel like they could be out of some of those, um, giallo or horror movies or some of the um, police procedurals. I can't pull the Chetty um, genre where like the side characters are like, you know, big and alive, like the mechanic in this one. And some of the other people yeah. as well feel like that's, I feel like they watch an American film and that's what they point out of it. Like, Oh, you do this, this, and this. And cause I always, you know, love uh, non U S territory seeing what they pull from certain movies they're trying to knock off or what they, they say is influenced and like, Oh, they, cause they see it differently. They tell it differently. And that's the beauty of film across the globe. But it, it really is. And I miss the time when that was an admirable quality where you can look at people and admire the fact that they're taking different things and presenting different mm-hmm. ways. And it wasn't just being like, this guy's ripping him off. You should see this instead. Where it's more like, they're all complimenting each other. It's yeah. not like these guys are making movies to be like, I want to spite this director that I took from. They like yep. want to they want to make something yeah. that represents their vision that they enjoy. Like you really think about it, like you, you look back and you start. People are starting to do the work now and finding noirish movies in Mexican cinema. Obviously, you know, mm-hmm. in French cinema, there are movies that feel like noir back then. 
even Kurosawa has Stray Dog and Drunken Angel, which yeah. are I mean, Stray Dog is a guy who loses his gun. To Sherman Funny loses his gun. Kurosawa loved Westerns. Like, he made his movies. Yeah. Like. <laughs> I mean, he must have seen Kurosawa probably saw the Maltese Falcon. And this is, of course, being a Japanese guy right two years after the end of this war. But I wonder how much of that was just in the air and how much of it was him specifically wanting to do. Obviously, Yojimbo is Red Harvest, right? And um, that's Dashiell Hammett, and which also reminds me that some of these not uh, some of these uh, stories date back to the Depression, which makes a lot of sense. If, mm-hmm. if, if if this material was first emerging in American culture during such a hard hard ass time, the people were ready. That that explains the fatalism to me a little more. I wouldn't mind reading a story about a crook who's going to going to go down at the end if I was like driving across the country with my you know the Okies or whatever. Well, that's why I find it interesting because you have these, yeah, you have short stories or novels or what have you that are based off of authors writing from their experiences, which are before some of these great wars in some cases. And then you have these movies in the 50s and this post-war era in a time where, you know, like American conservatism and what have you are taking hold. And it's like, are we, what, what is that about where you're calling? And that's what you're asking earlier, right? Sorry, like, what are we calling back to? Are we, are we actually feeling this way again as if it were the bleak times uh, through the Depression or before, you know, around some of these wars? Or are we trying to make a connection here that relates this time to the era or what? And it's well, as tumultuous an era as that was. Maybe not a nuclear bomb, <laughs> but definitely, definitely a crazy era we're living through. And, I'm so far. I'm not seeing. I don't think. I don't think art is as sort of unified as it was in, in the '50s. I don't think we're going to see these big movements, organic movements like film noir. I wish we would, but it seems like escapism is sort of more the the taste of the like. It's just so horrible that people just don't even want to think about it. Yeah. Well, <laughs> so, and you know, it's funny. Uh, we were talking about. You said the the novel stuff that these were. You know, yeah, they're they're mostly based off novels, but they're based off of novels that people consider junk. Like they were like trashy, like detective, yeah, whatever. And Subject they matter. became legendary. Like we're doing a commentary on Kiss Me Deadly. And I'm sure that novel, while heralded, if you read back because it strives from this movie, was probably just a just a grocery stand novel. Uh-huh. Uh, even if even that quality back then, because they would crank these suckers out like crazy. And there's probably a ton of these things that have been lost to time and forgotten, but only the ones we know are preserved because they have these movies made and the movie is probably better than the novels. So now we're introducing, um, mm-hmm. it's very uh, James the, Bond the, scene. The, the film, the fatale <laughs> of the film. Um, I forget the actress's name. This is bad. Uh, What's her name? Do we know? I, I um, um, Lily, Lily, uh, no, it, that Lily's, um, no, yeah, it's Lily, yeah, Lily Carver, right? That's the she's obviously she I think it isn't uh Gene Seberg and Breathless is basically dressed just like this. The most famous Godard movie, um, you know, mm-hmm. with the Longo and her. I think she's dressed ex- almost exactly like with a short blonde haircut. Yeah. Like that. Mm-hmm. That's a direct reference that that kickstart and Breathless is almost the movie that kickstarts the new wave and makes it so cool, you know, the the same sort of image that's a much lighter movie than this in a lot of ways. So this is uh Gabby Rogers. Right. And um, I mean, she'll be revealed as the kind of the, the basically the thumb fit. I mean, she already you can kind of any character that's introduced a woman on a bed holding a gun at the hero, probably yeah. the femme fatale of the movie. But, um. the, fir- the first one we meet is all she's wearing a trench coat, and here we have all she's wearing is a robe. 
yeah, similar a, hair. Every, yeah, there's a there's a there's a mirroring quality to this, and the, mm-hmm. later on she'll be out in the street in just that robe as well, just like Laura's right. out on the street. There are a lot of really strong female roles in this movie. It's true. Whoever was saying it was a feminist movie, it certainly has a lot of memorable women in it. You know, they, like, I mean, right? they got they, the story's guided by what they. I mean, you know, Mike Hammer is going through the the actions here, but like the right. plots unfolding because of these characters' actions. Also notable, like. Based off the rhythm of this movie, and even within the time, uh, Lily and um, Chorus Leachman, like she's probably she's very likely a, a lesbian character, which is you know not yeah. a. If not I a, recall, she was more specifically thing. written as a lesbian in initial drafts, but I could be mistaken. But that's I mean in the book, I'm sure, but she wouldn't be allowed to be in the wouldn't be allowed to pronounce it. But I mean, given the and that's not, not being stereotypical, just in terms of what yeah. these directors are going for, have a short haircut like this, the way she presents herself. I mean, that's what they that's what they're going for with this with you know the the presence of her here. And yet Gene Seberg is not, she's totally sexualized sort of hetero and, and breathless with the same look, mm-hmm. which is interesting. Well, the French. Yeah. Uh good daughter. That's a great shot though. So I first saw this movie in college as well. I saw it in my film noir class uh, that I had, which was a wonderful class. I think I had an ex-journalist, an Italian, older Italian woman who just saw all these different movies. Um, and I, like at that point in my film watching days, I've already like Universal was like releasing, you know, things like Touch of Evil and D- Double Indemnity on DVD. And I had those and I was like, this is cool. I'm getting to see like some of the older movies that I hadn't already seen. Kevin that was when like, I saw most of those for the first time too. I'm sure yeah. Like yeah, like having grown up on like Hitchcock movies, like cool. There's I can see more of these now because they're putting these out. So I saw Kiss Me Deadly projected on our we had like a lecture hall, so it was projected on a screen. So it was like seeing it in a theater, essentially. So mm-hmm. and I was very happy about that. Yeah. And yeah, this movie really worked for me. Especially like I was already drawn in just based off of how different it felt from other noir. But we get to this point later on in the movie where it just kicked up a notch because I knew nothing about this. I didn't know like even the Pulp Fiction kind of connection or what have you. So when you reveal that there's like some kind of crazy thing at the end of the, you know, the Mag- when the MacGuffin comes out, <laughs> great, what's it? I'm like, what the fuck just happened? Like, it ramps up. Like, and I remember when it happened because it was a silent like lecture hall. We're all watching this movie in the class and there were gasps. It's like nobody saw this thing coming and it was pretty crazy. I was like, this is probably what it felt like in a theater to watch this movie for the first time. So I was really, I've always been a, I've always the been uh, a Dom of- Draper, Planet of the Apes. Exactly. It's the, oh, exactly yeah. that. <laughs> that's a that's a that's a great moment in that show. Was he do yeah, yeah. when him and his son are watching Planet of the Apes in the theater? Oh and he's he's just yeah. like going to see like he's like, ah, some kids movie, you know, some kids yeah. movie attitude, and then he sees the end. And he's like, yeah, and, and, and his son's like the son's stunned also. And then what yeah. I think at the end, even like, can we see it again? I think or something like that, right? It's like, one it's, of the best bits of acting I've ever seen. Is that and now it's a meme <laughs> now, but I mean, it's just it's incredible. It's, it is. Oh, I so, yeah. But yeah, so I've always been a fan of said seeing it. I've always been a fan of Kiss Me Deadly. It is one that really sticks out to me as far as noir goes. Vava Voom's back. This is he's so fun. So we, we, <laughs> the energy of this guy is great. We didn't have a noir class. I, I was a section of a genres class, and I only we watched we watched Maltese Falcon, of course. Uh Chinatown was in there. Um because he wanted to show uh-huh. post. Oh, there's a couple others in there. I yeah, so yeah, I, I think want maybe to... I went to UC Santa Barbara and they have a good film program there. So they had a lot of like different kinds of film classes. Scott Frank's a graduate of the UCSB film program. He gets some great cars in this one. He has first, he has that Jaguar. 
he's got this what this MG, mm-hmm. thing, and then um, we'll get to the Chevrolet eventually. Something I like the like yeah, the bomb. It's sticks of dynamite with a string on it. <laughs> well, they were probably connected to something. Yeah, probably something important. That's how bombs work. That is how bombs work. I like how casual they are about this. Do they just get back in the cars like, oh, that's wild? <laughs> I guess we should keep driving. What do you know, right? Well, this uh, yeah, the novel was what in New York, and they like completely revamped yeah. it to an LA movie. Like they just figured they couldn't fake it. Right. Why try? Um, it's a B movie. It's cheap. It's Hollywood. Yeah. yeah this, this is regular driving, but it feels like yeah. oh, she's a- This is my favorite. This is one of my favorite <laughs> shots in a movie. Anytime you have a, a camera placed on the trunk of the car, filming mm-hmm. in front, I love that shot. I love seeing it. I love seeing it in modern movies because that's a thing that a director had to ask for. It's not something they can just casually do, right? So it's like, oh, they actually put effort into this because they they wanted to make noir. a shot like that. A lot of noir has that element of shot mm-hmm. on real streets. Mm-hmm. Oh. Yeah. Some of the great element of noir, they always seem to be shot in San Francisco or LA, you know. Well, that makes some great time capsule movies. Like, this is shot yeah. in what, um, B- Bunker Hill in LA, like uh, downtown areas. And there's a lot of stuff that I mean, a lot of it's just not there anymore, but certainly gives you a perspective of what LA looked like in 1955. Yeah, if I recall, that was that place was on the verge of demolition. Is that right? Mm. Okay, never mind. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I, I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, um. I mean, you know, Hollywood was demolished a number of times before yeah, yeah. it is. Um, this, like, where... Sorry, I'm looking at the smoke in the background. Well, this this quieter period that we have here is just, like, character work. <laughs> it's just like, what's Mike all about? And he's going to get a chance to relate. All right. Um is it on? And I, I, I'm not an expert. Then, real, real, I'm, I'm sorry. This, oh, is ahead, real, go this, ahead. This, this is the rare time that we're not following Mike. We just get a, a, a few scenes with not Mike, so we can follow his friend, who's going. And it's only because we need to establish it more because it's going to be a tragic end soon. But I do find it interesting. We really don't get much time away from our hero. With like, I think maybe this is the exception. Like, there's maybe one or two scenes that don't have Must Mike. Must be. Um, no, I'm wondering if, if this, even back then, if this film was an exception in terms of having, you know, a handful of non-stereotypical, not white characters in major supporting roles, because it certainly feels eclectic in that sense, uh, in a way that I don't know. I'm curious if it stood out at the time or not, but anyway. I mean, it reflects how things still are as far as, yeah, you know, well, the cheaper the, the, well, the cheaper the movie is, the less care you have to have about who's on screen all the time, right? That is true. From some perspectives, I know. That's yeah, yeah. well, that's why, you know, you and I have both talked about one of the reasons that horror, you know, is weirdly more progressive than a lot of other genres is it's cheaper. So you can focus on non-white protagonists and, you know, the poor. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I have a great bit of trivia here. Uh, sure. So, Ralph Meeker, got it. His final, fi- the guy in this movie. Um, yeah. Thank you. <laughs> his his final film uh, was without warning. Do you know what that one is? Yeah, I it's do. It's like the alien slasher movie that was shot by Dean Cundey and <laughs> has Jack Palance and Martin Landau in it. Uh, it's, it goes lost for many years to like Shout Factory put it out, but that movie. 
That's directed by Graydon Clark. Graydon Clark, who did uh, a triplet of Joe Don Baker's finest with Wacko, Joysticks, and Final Justice. But his last uh, directing jobs was on Mike Hammer, Private Eye. Oh, really? Starring, it was two episodes, starring Stacey Keach as Mike Hammer. I remember that show. I was a little kid. Fascinating. And Peter Jason as Captain Skip Gleason. John Carpenter's Peter Jason? Yes. That, Did that air in the, the early 80s? The guy that and not yeah, Meatloaf, Peter Jason. Show. I always think Peter Jason looks like Meatloaf. He doesn't look like seen He does. He very much looks like that. bar and Peter Jason walked in and I pointed at him and said, oh my God, it's Peter Jason. And the guy I was with pushed my arm down and said, stop that. And I was like, really? Do you really think Peter Jason gets that enough that he would want me to not do that when he walked into a bar? <laughs> he doesn't want guys pointing down and going, oh my God, it's that guy. I love him. Peter Jason probably go home with you if you did that. Yeah. I was told that I was being uh, making a scene of myself. Like, come on, it's the guy from all the Carpenter movies. No, that's the, that's the but, but, but he gets that, and he's like, "Why is it always the old white dudes that do this, not the more than old <laughs> young yet. ladies or something?" <laughs> yeah, the young ladies. My camera, private eye. That's the '90s show. There was yeah, a 1997. Of shows. Yeah, yeah, because there's a there's the new my camera. That was the '80s show. With an HBO well, well, also with Stacy Keach. <laughs> Stacy Keach, yeah, he's on the book. Oh, he was the Columbo of, of Mickey Spillane. Apparently, he yeah. just came back whenever he wanted to. <laughs> Has anyone seen any other like uh, Mike Hammer films or? Ch- I get the answer. You said Mike Hammer, isn't it? When you're talking about them releasing those film noirs in that in that mid 2000 era, that was one of the ones in the first noir Warner Brothers box it had out of the Which past. It's called Murder My Sweet, Edward Demetrix movie with. Mm-hmm. Uh, with Dick's Dick, what's a Dick Powell? I think that's a Mike Hammer movie. By the way, there we go. Who's that on screen? That is Struther Martin. Yeah. For most, well, you just saw the Paul Newman thing. What we have here is a, was that what we have here is a failure to a failure to communicate. Yeah. Also famous to me for his line at the beginning of Up in Smoke. You got to go to get a goddamn job or sending me off to military school with a goddamn Finkelstein shit kid, son of a bitch. He plays Chong's father. <laughs> He's also in the wild. <laughs> Uh, he's one of, and one of the and Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid, yeah. one of the greatest uh, character actors, right there, Strother Martin. Uh, one of the best names of an actor, too, Strother Martin. That's great. Uh, <laughs> Forty years ago this year, um, Armand Asante played Mike Hammer in I the Jury. Yeah, seen that. Whose movie is that? That somebody ba- Barbara Carrera, uh, Richard T. Heffron. Hmm. Uh, yeah, it's the, the second time they Paul made Servino the was Paul Servino was Detective Pat Chambers in that one. There's a movie where Mike Hammer plays, uh, where Mickey Splane plays Mike Hammer, which I've never seen, called like the Girl mm-hmm. Hunters or something. I'm told the it's Girl Hunters with yeah. uh, Shirley Eaton. Is that what it is? Yeah, isn't it? Yeah. Isn't Mickey Splane yeah. actually? He, he is Mickey Spillane as Mike Hammer. Yes, yeah. My friend Robert's a big fan of that movie. I haven't heard the be- I haven't seen any of the uh, Mike Hammer films. I haven't heard the best things about any of them, honestly. Besides this one, the Hammerverse. Oh, 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 there's also Philip Marlowe. That maybe that's maybe that's who Murder My Sweet is. Yeah, because I'm not seeing Murder My Sweet here on there's two Mike Hammer list. There's there's oh. a there's a Murder Me, Murder You. There was there was a the, another adaptation of I the Jury two years before this, um, directed by Harry Essex with Biff Elliott as Mike Hammer. I think there was a Philip Marlowe show with Powers Booth. <laughs> surprised anyway those are the two guys i think philip marlowe is the multi falcon right that they, if you have stacy keach is one you have to have powers booth as the other that just makes yeah. sense to me so that's why it's always a trip watching um sin city because it has both stacy keach and powers booth at all. it does it's right 
And you also get a more diverse cast because I think that's part of the detective genre is you always have all these different sort of informants from different strata of life. But I think a movie like this was allowed to get away with all sorts of stuff because no one cared. No one thought, you know, if you're a giant John Crawford movie, they probably were going through with a fine tooth comb to make sure you weren't doing anything subversive. Well, here's the other here's the other thing. This is an early Robert Aldrich film, but he got to do like he had a he was contractually allowed to do like whatever he wanted in this movie. Really? I, I don't know how they changed the ending on him. That's a weird development um, as far as things go. But yeah, he like mystery. nobody knows what happened, and because the change made it more extreme, not less extreme. Somebody yeah. just popped that that footage off for some reason. Yeah, but man, is, that Aldrich is a dark, dark man. But yeah, this is his fifth movie. I mean, it's it's not. And he'd go on to make like Jesus, like twenty more movies. Like, but is early for for Aldrich for sure. And yeah, he they had worked back control. then. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> like I saw, like I saw in the trivia that it's like this movie took three weeks to make. It's like it took that long. Like, so. but I mean, it's also it's also easier. I mean, they were working their schedules back then. I mean, they would work at like a normal job. Like it was yeah, nine sure. to five ish, and the the night shoots were rarer. I mean, they were. Uh, yeah necessary evil it's it's a job yeah and now it's like insanity with the schedules you can't you know you could have your nine to five and be in the film industry you can't do that really much anymore yancy what are your thoughts on robert aldridge as the director he's good i always confuse him with uh who directed the great escape john sturgis Sturgis. i always think guys for some reason and i think of the two robert aldridge is much more interesting um, I would agree. Yeah, he'd done Attack before this, a great war movie with Jack uh, Palance and Eddie Albert called Attack, which I love. He has Apache with Burt Lancaster, which has probably mm. aged very well. <laughs> uh, and after this, he's got what the Dirty Dozen and uh, um, Flight of the Phoenix, Longest Yard, whatever happened to Baby Jane, obviously. Vera Cruz was right uh, after Vera Cruz. Early yeah. drama, the killing of what's it called, the killing of Sister Georgie, I think it's called one of the first sort of movies to deal with like a lesbian mm-hmm. affair head on. Um, I uh, forgot that he did the Frisco kid. <laughs> that just, just, yeah, that just came out on Blu-ray. I forgot that he was the director. <laughs> and then all marbles. Is that his last movie? That's his last movie. Yeah. All the thing. He's really good. You know, this I think is by far his most artful, intentionally artful movie. Like, you know, he, he, he's sort of more of a really strong journeyman. Um, He's a very yeah. Journeyman's. A, I mean, obviously, a this is the work of someone who knows how to make a real uh, 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 a tour movie if he needs to. Because this movie, you know, is is. I'm not going to undercredit some of these other credits that he has here, as far as what he's bringing to them, though. I do like something like the Dirty Dozen could be more more straightforward than it actually is when you look at like what the juxtaposition is as far as having these men do the mission that they have to eventually do. He directed a movie called. Did he direct The Big Knife with Jack Collins? Yes, that's another. Great that's that's right after this one. That's a great with him with Jack Palance as a movie star and Rod Steiger, very noir uh, movie. Two wimps. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Legendary scrawny guys. <laughs> now, if you ever see that movie, it's it, it's hard to imagine. And I hate to say this, I don't, Jack Palance is Jack Palance is such a strange looking man, but that's a period where he was being pushed as really hot. <laughs> like in the big knife, he's you know, he's supposed to be this really hot famous movie star yeah it's like early nick nolte and you're like how did this happen nolte was really handsome (laughs) i'm saying there was this there was that before before like i don't know 1994 like it was like nick nolte he's yeah he's handsome guy like he he was what he was like sexiest man alive or something at some point wasn't he he was like he was nick nolte is the 
is the man who walked into the party uh, with a yellow or uh, scarf. It was apricot. You know, the Carly Simon song. Mm-hmm. Your scarf, it was apricot. You're so vain. There's one line in the song where she's describing the guy, and he's got an apricot scarf, and that was actually Nick Nolte. That Nick Nolte's guy. very sexy. Yeah, now he's the guy that stands <laughs> at, at the buffet. It was the Hulk. It was that getting arrested when he was in the Hulk, that, that the headshot. Oh, yeah. yeah. Hair is all dyed. That did it. And also, he got really weird with the B vitamins, injecting B vitamins into his ass. I'm like, he weirded everybody out. <laughs> it's Wasn't interesting. Like violent, you bring up Nolte. You didn't have some violent spells, too. Oh. No, I don't think so, but or drunk spells, like something. Drunk spells, drunk spells, more. Yeah, he, he, was never, he never stopped being a good actor. I mean, that helps, yeah. right? <laughs> He's still very good at the things that he pops up. In. I mean, in in Hulk, he is super committed. Like he is. Well, he's good in what's it? Um, the re- the remake of Baba Baba Von Bloor. What's it? The um. The Good Thief. He's good in that movie. He's, he's, good. Good. What, he, he's, he's, he's always good. Was yeah. he nominated for Warrior? I forget. Was he nominated for Warrior? Yeah, uh, I don't think so. He's great in Warrior. I'm trying Just to I don't think that film got much of it. I mean, Cape we all Fear, liked it, but nobody saw oil, it. The Prince of Tides. He's great in that period of Cape Fear and the Prince of Tides, Lorenzo's Oil, and that, that uh, New York Lorenzo's film. Oil. I mean, Sons of Lambs is one of my favorite movies, but let's be honest. Nick Nolte should have won Best Actor that year because Anthony Hopkins should have been the Best Supporting Actor. Yeah, yeah. Um in fact, Nolte, really- Nolte was nominated for Warrior. He was. Yeah. Oh, my mistake. Um, Nolte's so good that he made Lorenzo's oil work with that accent. That's how good Nolte <laughs> is. So, speaking of Nolte, has anyone seen Mahon Falls? Not in forever. Is that, yeah, the, is that this is a movie that kind of feels the same cloth? Is that and that's that's from Die Another Day's Lee Tamahori, right? Yes. It's a, a 1950s you know gumshoe you know rogue police film in which an investigation into a murder of a, a young woman played by Jennifer Connelly in flashback uh, ends up being tied to the Manhattan Project. Right. And Good. Related, uh, no, but it's worth watching as a time capsule. I that's it was on a TV one day and I thought, eh, I'll watch this while I'm doing the dishes. It, yeah, um, it, that's all. That's one that's see, always. That's, like a, a, that's on Tubi, Aaron. Just so you thank know. you. Thanks. Okay, good to know. That's all. That's one that's always felt like a like Hollywood Land or Black Dolly, where yeah. it's like, well, the it's idea is there, it's just not a good yeah. movie. <laughs> it's like a, um, you have to be able to stomach watching John Malkovich and Jennifer Connelly uh, have sex. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, there's a character where about well, we've already met him, but the 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 basically the main villain who isn't in this all that much, but this guy yeah. in the white shirt is basically the Malkovich character. Carlo Avello. Yeah. Another great actor. Who's just, you guys recognize you know, he's, from like the 80s? Yeah, he's clearly evil, but he's also sort of nonchalant and, you know, it's... it's but it's, he's very... Like, this guy gets knocked off like a ton. Like, he's in the Big yeah. Lebowski. He's the, por- he's the porn director guy in Big Lebowski. Yeah. He's, he appears in so many movies. This this type, this look, this, this, this attitude... Let me say this must have been one of the first appearances of an eyes on the cross shirt in a movie. Yeah, right, right, right. Not like fifty one, fifty two, and they got the smoothie wearing one in this. His two. um, Thanks to this movie, I've been wearing golf shirts for twenty five years. Yeah, this this very scene right here is gonna come up in film history over and over and over, and I can't think of a noir that has this type of guy. And yeah, because we have the scenes with the all right, you. But this this is this is in Big Lebowski. This very scene. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think one thing that's that stuck out to me, at least, you know, when I saw this film, is that all the all the supporting characters are really colorful mm-hmm. in yeah. ways both cartoonish and creepy. Yeah. Sometimes at the same time. That's what I'm saying. The heightened. Yeah. Yeah. yeah like everybody hammers straight. The the females they cross they they go over. Yeah. They're they in hysterics and stuff. But like 
Yeah, Hammer. The, the only one that's grounded is Velda, his secretary. She's yeah. the one that's like yeah. normal. She's the, in this movie in general. She almost seems like the only normal person. In time. Yeah. yeah, and it's town is full of crazy people. Yeah. That's sort of what creates this weird feeling of almost fantasy. In that's that. one of the elements of it's one. The, I forget yeah. where I thought, but someone there's six elements. There's basically six elements that sort of make up film noir, and a dreamlike quality is one. Cruelty is another. Eroticism is a third. There's like six of them, and no movie has all six, but. Well, there's the uh, the, you know, underground, whatever in paradise, like crappy things happening. Yeah, I, assume, I assume Roger Rabbit has also. And that's why most of them get L.A. <laughs> as a setting is because, oh, it's sunny and right. nice outside. Right. This guy's stare like he is like secretly stealing your soul while it's you're the, having the a conversation. Eyebrows. Yeah, it's the eyebrows. There's Angel Flight. But they get a glisten. They get a glisten from his eyes that just is ooh, creepy. I love that even though it's you know on location and perfectly normal in this scenario, the monorail looks kind of creepy. Yeah. Well, because somebody's going to jump out and roll down the stairs to get rid of a Pazuzu yeah. demon. So exactly. You keep saying this. That's, that's it's across not the, the country. It is. <laughs> but it me of for you, but that, that's not going to happen. No, I know. It reminds now. me of it, though, like the it's way they shoot it. Oh yeah, like yeah. Um, I, I'm aware that one's Baltimore, one is yeah. I like how it. it, it this movie kind of highlights the verticality of LA. You don't really get that very often. Because generally, you get like San Francisco, obviously, or you know any number of. You know, skyscraper cities. LA is not really that. LA is flat and spread out. You know, <laughs> this one, you get You're a lot of. I'm uh, oh, sorry, go ahead, I'm just saying, you, you just get a lot of interesting topography of LA, which is not always something that's emphasized, especially in something like this, because movies like this are generally set in New York or something like that. But you have these LA versions where you can you can play with the surroundings because in the midst of darkness or what have you, you also have palm trees and beaches and sunshine but also like there are buildings there are stairs there are you know elements that raise and whatnot which gives a level of awareness to the character as far as how high they're standing what are you gonna say Yancy? i'm sorry oh i i, I, I don't remember what i'm saying <laughs> sorry i didn't <laughs> thing. might have been something about whatever it is that uh beaker's got in his hair like what did guys wear in their hair in nineteen fifty five? Pomade, whatever. Grease, just rice milk. But his is rather dry <laughs> compared. But yeah, it's been Meeker, a long day. Guess, Meeker's one of the three guys in Paths of Glory, right? He gets, um, mm-hmm. but yes, yeah, yeah. Which is also kind of a noir movie, uh, even though it's not a noir. It has that same bleak looks, looking straight at the, into the abyss of these guys having to die the next day. Yeah, it's this. I mean, being an anti-war movie, it has a. It has things that rub against. I can see that. Like what else Meeker did? He's in the great the Dirty Dozen too. He's got a big part of Dirty Dozen. Yeah. I think Ralph Meeker. He's the the captain, which is a great movie too. Aldrich. I don't. Do you think that modern audiences would not be able to take to cotton to this because it's too slow or too? No, I think it moves. And it's, yeah, but, and it's in the, like the side characters, like we were talking with the heightened theatrics help it play. I think this one would play good to a uh, modern audience compared to others. I think anyone who chooses to watch this movie with at least some awareness of when it was made and what it is will be fine with it. 
Yeah, it's there's the kind a sect of, the, of people you're never going to win with. That's for sure. yeah, exactly, and yeah. part of it is it's and it, this is shallow, but the buy-in is the fact that it's a black and white movie. Like, I mean, that's yeah. and it's you know not a stylized take on a black and white. It's not you know the 2012 movie that's shot in black and white yeah. to make it look neat. It's a movie it's that's. <laughs> and I mean, it's, it's not like this is new. This would have been some, somebody in the '80s would have been like, "I don't watch that old movie." I don't yeah, it's a, we it's just an now old can, movie to them. We get to see all their fucking opinions in text form <laughs> nowadays. So I, I think the, the counter is that this movie starts so strikingly by having you know Cloris Leachman running out in the middle, panicked. It's mm-hmm. like, well, that's a good way to get you know grasp somebody from the get go. So yes, like Brandon, you just like if anyone that's or Scott, like if it, whoever's seeking you know sits down and says, "I'm going to put this on." I don't think they would be thrown off by doing that. I think it would take them a a good while to f- start fading, but by that time they'd be like, "Well, I might as well wrap this up." Uh, if they oh, do, I think the first after that that prologue or pre-title sequence or whatever you want to call it, the film's a little slow to get going because the protagonist isn't all that. But what he's doing while it's slow to get going is fascinating. It's not boring. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, in terms of plot, you know, he doesn't really get on the right track until maybe halfway through the movie. Oh, yeah. This movie itself is not like right now in this movie. I don't necessarily know what it would need to be accomplishing beyond. Well, he's met a bad guy. It seems there's some mysterious woman hanging around. What's the end goal of this thing? I don't quite know what that is because the movie doesn't even introduce like the what's it until like way later on. We just know, like, there's there's creepy people running around. Maybe this woman needs to be safe. I don't know. (laughs) Which is an echo of the big sleep, of course. I mean, notoriously, not even the screenwriters could explain who did what or who killed this character intentionally. It's just a thicket of, and it's also an LA movie. There's Uh, a great shot. That that some good shots here. As far as like, is somebody watching them? I don't know. What what does this mean? Like, just good angle choices. Yeah, build suspense. I mean, the big reveal in terms of, you know, what is or isn't in the suitcase, that's 15 minutes to the end of the film. Yeah. yeah. Um, and th- part of Lee, that's why it's such a whammy. It's like, oh, there's still some storytelling left in this picture. This is that Which, mirror shot where she runs out into the street and he gets in the car and they go. And as far as calling back to the beginning. Cover thing over her. Yeah. Which what what would that purpose be on that car for that? Like what is? I'm just wondering because rain. Uh, yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. 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 Yeah. You know, you get out of the car, you leave sense. it on the street. It put doesn't it have rain. a top to put on. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Makes rain. sense. Gotcha. It's almost seventy years old, right? It's funny to think that it doesn't feel a movie that would be 70 years older than this would feel very, very antiquated. But this, at least to me, it doesn't feel that hopelessly um, out of touch with what you'd see in a, in a, in a, in a grown up keys is back. I, I argue a lot of noir can feel that way just because it's, it's emphasizing certain kinds of things, right? It's not emphasizing necessarily the time beyond you know elements that are impossible not to replicate whether it's telephones or what have you oh no they're gonna kill them boom, boom. it doesn't do the phony baloney oh, stuff that you I also think cynicism movies. ages better than yeah know, for sure specific sincerity yeah sure but getting also if people not have sincerity a, optimism opt yeah people have a false sense that all old movies are falsely yeah. optimistic they say, yeah. Uh, yeah every old movie is frank capra yeah yeah okay i mean that's one of my 
favorite episodes of Friends is where, you know, somebody tells Phoebe to watch It's a Wonderful Life and she thinks it's a horrible, terrible, grim, dark movie that she turned it off before the end. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it is. It's a very dark movie until you get to the last, you know, 10 minutes. That's I, like the the I like all that stuff better than the last 10 minutes. I, yeah. I'd, argue, I'd argue that's why uh, Hitchcock stuff stands up so well uh, with yeah. you know, varying ages because exactly the things that he's playing on it's not about the time that they're coming through it's about these raw emotions and suspense you know, and, and things they, that, I mean, oh, years when people still feel the same way yeah you know? it's not the victorian age um and i think to a certain extent you know, we were talking about this earlier and this might be a simplistic way of looking at it so apologies in advance but the idea that film noir or films of this nature were the people of that era offering a realistic bubble puncturing of the fantasy that was being sold by popular society and pop culture. Um, and that's how they existed and thrived, even as, you know, those in, in were everyone else was trying to convince you that America was as strong as it's ever been. Everything's prosperous. Everything's wonderful, blah, blah, blah. And these were the films that were saying, yeah, that's a bunch of shit. Uh, and they were written and made by people that had been through hell and back in World War II. Um, so they had that shell shock cynicism, you know, wearing it on their on their sleeve, so to speak. Um, you know, stereotypically speaking, you know, it's it's you know these films were the counterpoint to the fantasy, yeah. and because there were so many films being made back then you know, unassuming B pictures, et cetera, et cetera, by default, you would have a lot of films like this that were more honest and cynical about their times than you might expect if you thought that everybody was, was thought they were living in Pleasantville, so to speak. Right. Hmm. Well said. I said the wrong at Nick Dennis. That's the actor. Yeah. Yeah. He's great. And now he's dead and it's sad. Even Ralph Meeker makes it look sad. And he's a guy that pretty much has a stone cold face the whole time. It's just like he's upset about this. Really, it it drives his it drives him for the rest of the picture. It's a rough piece of the film here. On this criterion Blu-ray. I'll just enter your apartment. This casual relationship he has with his secretary. I'll just walk in, get on your bed, and say, Hey, wake up. Uh, Daddy wants some. Get that cat out of the way. Yeah, we were talking the other day. I think with at least Aaron and Brandon about about that. I had read that article about the remake of Working Girl that Selena Gomez was going to be in, and how the person writing it was like, "Oh, they've got to redo everything in Working Girl because my God, those people aren't even good people. They don't act like good people." it makes me think, okay, so the modern audience, you need to act like good people to, for it to be a good movie. You have to be relatable. If you're so a villain, you got to be relatable. Gotta be it, can't, it can't be negative or harmful unless it's uh, comedically intended. If, if it's not like, I don't know, bad teacher, then it, it needs to be very cut and dry good. <laughs> yeah, well, we, have a, we have a villain problem with a lot of things nowadays because like, just let them be villains. They're vile. They're bad. We don't need to like them. We don't need to ship them. They need to have a. They need to have a backstory. They need to have a spinoff. 
It used to be that guy's awful and monsters had cool designs, but you weren't rooting for them. You just thought, yeah, it's kind of no, cool. I like scary need, things. We need, we need to know that their parents were pushed over cliffs by dogs. That's how it works. Now. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Look, if you're going to make a fucking Corella movie, of course you want a scene where a mother gets murdered by Dalmatians. Otherwise, what the hell are we doing here? <laughs> You're, you're um, entirely right. Like that's yes, yes, I know. I know. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I do think there is a strain of criticism, and I don't know how much it represents general audiences versus a certain strain of the perpetually online, where yeah, there's a certain depiction equals endorsement strain where you know sure. people that, and I don't know, you know, I I, I don't want to get too much into speculating as to why, but I do think it's a matter of when this generation grew up and they don't, you know, it's been a pretty shitty 20 years. Let's put it that way. Um, and I do think there's a certain strain of popular thought that, you know, presenting problematic characters in films in anything other than, you know, Hayes code type punishments is implicitly either endorsing that behavior or going to inspire other audiences to read it in a way that is aspirational. It's also right. Um, not, no one, yeah, no one thinks that you're watching this movie. We're not thinking this movie is telling us to act like my camera acts, but the movie is wise enough to know that we're going to find it compelling to watch a movie about a guy who acts like my camera acts because we've all done things. We all understand the darks of, of certain certain human adulthood. So dark um, kind of man. Yeah, I, Mark is this way that most like a harvest. That being said, I do th- I do wonder, in terms of the effect that the extent that pop culture does shape regular culture, if there really was some kind of harm over twenty years, you know, in thirty years we've gone from the Naked Gun two and a half, where which is those films are pretty conservative in their politics, not in a dangerous really way, noticed. but they're made by you know people that were you know sane Republicans. That being said, in the Naked Gun two and a half. You know, the the Republicans are cartoonishly evil who want to destroy the environment for shits and giggles. And that's fine. That's not considered a politically courageous point of view. That's just, of course, that's these are the bad guys. You know, they're Mr. Burns. And that, you know, 20, right. 30 years later, you have these films where the, these evil villains, they want to destroy the, you know, the world to save the environment. And I wonder to what extent if there has been a consequence in terms of popular perception by having so many big films and so many big TV shows where the villains had these sympathetic motives where they just went about them the wrong way. I do think part of this comes down to attention spans. Uh, I think, I think attention spans play a role into this where if you can put, if you can put things into a bite-sized container, as far as a headline or a, a brief clip on Twitter, and that becomes like, the defining way to understand the, the the method here and what the movie ascribes to and what it's trying to convince the viewer of. And you lose all of the context, you lose any sense of nuance, and you lose just the manner of how to watch a movie. I mean, talking about if you people would watch the movie, if people, if talking about how people would watch a movie like this these days. I mean, the, the other key thing in all involving in all that is they have to actually sit down and watch it, and, you know, not do anything else. And that's an increasing issue that I think is the, you know, not going to help. Uh, it doesn't help older films, no, especially when oh, films like are a visual medium. <laughs> like movies that you have to watch as closely as this to get, you know, they still make them. There's the sophisticated movies come out every year, but mm-hmm. but you're right. If someone watched this today, most people, at least by my perception of Twitter, would 
watch five minutes of it and find some way to be self-satisfied about not being a book barbarian like these people were. Or highlight a thing that they think is the cool part and then not worry about it. Like think of something like Ex Machina, a movie that's popular, but it's an A24 film. It's not like it's a huge blockbuster. But what do people define Ex Machina as? Do they define it as an existential journey to understand the consciousness of an AI versus a human? Or do they define it as a movie about Oscar Isaac dancing for five minutes or two, five seconds? Like, mm-hmm. you know, what's what's the thing that stands out more? So it was a question then that in hard times, we don't want to ever face things that are complicated and difficult because these, this would have been hard times too. Like what? Not 1955, but the, the certainly the Depression, and certainly, you know, these guys who come back from World War II, like this. He's sort of like a classic man in the gray flannel suit. And he has obviously has some. My camera has some kind of violent past. Probably was in the service. Probably killed a bunch of people. Don't ask him about it. He won't tell you about it. There were a whole generation of those guys who never had their lives. Never told anybody what they did. And never except their. What was your question? Well, now I'm trying to remember. I've rambled so <laughs> Well, I guess because I because I mean my my go to thought on this is well, this movie wasn't a hit. I mean, like it's held on, yeah. thankfully. Yeah. But I mean, it wasn't a hit film. So. Well, that's what Bogart, that the Bogart, I'll say Humphrey Bogart is sort of the spirit animal, the, the patronus of film noir. He represents things that change, and now Humphrey Bogart is the guy we all want to be in a movie for yeah. 10, 15 years. Uh-huh. What 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 made what caused that change? What what was in the air that made people want to see? themselves as more, something more fallible i guess my question is who's proceeding who's proceeding humphrey bogart like who's the who, who's the people that people who's the guy that people well, look bogart up to harry cooper who is just gorgeous or, or jimmy stewart who is you know and i think cable and yeah, there you Clark go cable yeah. who is gorgeous yeah. who, to be fair is a rogue and gone with the wind he's a rogue yeah yeah but he's clark gable I mean, yeah yeah but i mean it's, <laughs> who apparently it's... smells so i mean but um <laughs> is kind of this sad bastard he's an old guy he's mid-40s when when he went for high sierra he's already his first big movie and mm-hmm. he, you know somehow Humphrey bogart became the hero of a lot of people for a small period of time in the country where people well, I, you know it, minded that it, it, it must be a mix of both his voice and those bugs bunny cartoons but i mean i i don't i i can't i i you know based on just my age and general knowledge of how this stuff works it's hard to say what exactly you know led point a to point b but i, I don't think i'm too far off by saying Things like, you know, Westerns and certain genres, not necessarily got played out, but certainly were such abundance that seeing something different with a commanding guy like Bogart, uh, you know, regardless of his, yeah, regardless Western, of it. Through the 50s, Western, I'm not, I'm not, again, I wasn't, I'm not saying that they're gone. I'm just saying there's certainly an abundance of them where if you have something else that's shiny and new with this particular guy in it, I can understand flocking to that also, if not more so in some cases. It's like but, an urban. He's like an, an urbane character as opposed to a. Uh, sure. and I mean, it, America I, makes weird choices sometimes. Like, I mean, go to the '80s, Schwarzenegger. Like, that was yeah, our want, guy. We wanted this big well, Austrian yeah, guy to be the big. No thing. question why Schwarzenegger. <laughs> it's no question why Bogart and or Schwarzenegger were big because they're great. Yeah. Five minutes, either compelling characters to watch on. Well, that's, I mean, that's my mistake. Down, that's right? the John Malkovich character. There he is. Yeah. <laughs> there he is. Yeah, yeah. By the way, these, these henchmen, these that's guys are both. These guys are both. You got the guy with Creepy. the funny eyes here, who's dead, so I can say he's got funny eyes. Do you guys recognize Jack Elam? Because he was all through sort of the 80s. He probably died in the 80s, but he was like the crazy old coot in everything <laughs> from the 70s and 80s. Brandon, I'm sure you've seen Jack Elam movies. He's just got those funny, those those, those skewed eyes. Yeah. He's, a- he very, he's, like, he's in the, like, Peter Laurie school of... He's in, like, in this is almost like an American Boris Karloff, but later he was like in Smokey and Bandit too. Yeah, he was in, he was in Suburban Commando. Stuff. Was it? Yes, yeah, because he was. 
he was in a he was in a show when I was a little kid called Struck by Lightning, a show about the he Franklin. He's in a lot of like gun smokes and yeah. Western actors. Yeah. But I was I was gonna say the two henchmen, they're both in the killers playing like similar characters. <laughs> in the, the Burt Lancaster killers? Yeah, the Burt yeah, the first killers. Not the superior Reagan killers. You wouldn't even see a guy like Jackie Elam in a Clark Cable movie. <laughs> like you wouldn't, it wouldn't even be the admission that a guy like that exists that looks like Jackie Elam. Not to be cruel, but he, he's a successful actor. But like just the fact that a guy has a face like that makes it kind of a film noir. And he's in a lot of film noir, Jackie Elam. So yeah, this is this beautiful beach scene, big house, and it's a chase down. <laughs> it's dirty. Lunging, beat him up. It's an, it's not a nice fight. It's messy. It's just a guys, untrained guys that just throw <laughs> clobbering fists. Looks yeah. like the location in Hail Caesar. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and Ham, Hammer is unconscious again. Yeah, he's not a great uh, hero, Mike Hammer. Mm-hmm. He's just kind of a force of nature. I like noirs that take place at a beach. That's that's fun. Yeah. You don't yeah. see enough of that. Yeah. I know, you, Scott, you're not the biggest fan of Drive. I really like when they go when he beats Ron Perlman in the beach. And it's like, it's just, you don't see that kind of stuff very often as far as just using the ocean. Uh, for in a variety of ways, you know, keys is back thematically. What do they got to get out of them? Uh, um, See, a week after this film, that's when ET first visits visits him. <laughs> it came to me when I was a boy fiction, too, Elliot. Kind of that Pulp Fiction influence, right there. Oh yeah, the Gimp. So you could, yeah, you could, you could take Pulp Fiction and feel like Tarantino like mm-hmm. walked in at the last twenty minutes of this movie and decided, mm-hmm. ah, I'm going to build something around this. Right, now, <laughs> now, Mr. Bond, we will get you to talk. That's what you're talking about with the uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, too, right? When he, oh yeah, yeah. when they open the Ark, yeah, light up his face, yeah, or Repo Man. Repo Man's probably like the most obvious. Oh yeah, that's a direct. I mean, yeah. and that's not it's a criticism. What's in Marcellus's Wallace case? What do you think? It's his soul. What do you think it is? I'm like, no, it's not anything. It's a glowy thing everybody wants. That's what's in there. Mm-hmm. It's, so not, it's, it's not a mystery about what's in the thing. You're doing it wrong if you think it's a mystery about what's in the case. It's bearer bonds. <laughs> Whatever it's it is. Always be- I don't it's give a shit. I don't know what it is. Yeah, the way Cloris Leachman is tortured at the beginning of this movie is pretty shocking. Yeah. Also startling to think this is 16 years before the last picture show. Like, what was Cla- was Cloris Leachman acting this whole time? Was she just my wife? I assume, I assume yeah, so. Yeah, yeah. Not long before the last picture show. She's already playing a sort of middle-aged character. <laughs> I mean, she has a lot of credits. <laughs> it's, I'm sure she's probably doing stuff. This is her first movie? This yeah, this is her first movie. Auspicious. I guess not too much. I'm looking at her list now. It's like one other thing in the 50s and the 60s, a couple things. She's in Butch Cassidy. Oh, is she? She's in W. She's in a lot of Paul Newman, apparently. She's in WUSA. So this is, I like this costuming with this guy because, um, you know, he's casual. We have fun. Okay, get out of my house. And now it's like, oh, he, he, you know, he's he's in his mode now he's clocked in he yeah, things could go down here yeah the, just, the just eyebrows by, are even more sinister yeah just by showcase of his outfit tells a lot like we're in the office now you are you know 
Oh, TV. Cloris Leach was doing a lot of TV during this. That's what I'm, I was looking at the film list. TV, she's all over the place, guesting on a bunch of stuff. And she's in Raising Hope, which for completely unrelated reasons we were talking about before the podcast started. Yeah, oh. yeah and see, I was just saying she's in TV. Cloris Leach on a lot of TV during this. My wife said she was on the last scene in the mid-50s. A couple Alfred right. Hitchcock Presents episodes. That makes sense. 57 episodes of Charlie Wilde, Private Detective. I own all those on CED. No, just kidding. Well, my camera's got a way out. Yeah. The old move my hand around enough and I can escape. <laughs> <laughs> and I was going to break my thumb. There's your Venetian blinds. Yep. Required by law. <laughs> I feel like we're original in Double Indemnity. I feel like they're sort of in that a lot, and that was like an original touch. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Sort of sideways prison bars. It's funny because like Indemnity is, you know, it's forty-four. It's midway through this whole period, yet it has a lot of like it's a, one of the pinnacles. So it, yeah, it has a lot of stuff that like feels like it was established then. Yeah, no, that's right at the beginning. Forty-four is right. There, it's only you know, it's right at the end of the war and after. So then the war starts happening. Double indemnity or in the Maltese Falcon really is where you can start. I like your ah. Maltese Falcon because it's you know, like 41. I mean, yeah, there's and there's protos and whatnot. Yeah. Lost yeah. weekend. That's when I watched in my film class. Just hit me. Okay. There you go. That was yeah. uh, that's when I was like, oh, why was it? Because you look at stuff, you know, the evolution from like German expressionism and things like Fritz Lang's films or whatnot, where they're not necessarily noir, but I mean it's hard to you can't you can't not say it either as far as some of those films how those films go well, retro retroactively it wasn't yeah. there yet it was no, yeah, i get that yeah yeah, yeah. yeah but early horror movies have a big of oh, of course yeah there's like dracula <laughs> and frankenstein the, the big it's, it's just it's use of sh- yeah, shadows and you know the uh, architecture of certain buildings because you got these you these great european locations that they can work with and it just makes it look yeah funky 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 Fritz yeah, Lang's another creepy, yeah. great one. Yeah, Fritz Lang makes some great more. Big Heat. Big Heat, The Woman in the Window, Scarlet Street. Uh, great. It, where's that box set? Where's the Fritz Lang box set? Oh, gosh. I mean, that'd be great. Different companies. Maybe next week. Jerry <laughs> 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 <Here he> comes out. <laughs> they have a few. I mean, they got yeah. I am. Like, mm-hmm. Love me some them. A lot of great eyes in this movie. You mentioned that earlier, but there are a lot of like great faces to uh-huh. really keep up with the action. Yeah. This, like, a- this guy's like, what the fuck do I do now? Yeah. <laughs> so am I the boss? Do I find it? <laughs> think I would like to be the boss, but we had talked over it earlier, but the, you know, him getting brought to that beach house to begin with it's a good scene where you know hammer walks in the door turns on the lights and there's two guys there that's just classic or yeah. <laughs> classic any oh, detective oh. story or anything it's great somebody locked their doors yeah that's sort of a prideful way i think we don't lock our doors they still don't in canada right they don't remove the doors that. at this point oh. <laughs> it's very drafty Beat up hammer ties and you know slightly loosened hair is a little a must. <laughs> In the forties and fifties, whenever you go into a room, there's a huge 
bar that you can just walk up oh, to. Oh, yeah, everybody, down. every office, everything. Is yeah. like, there's like the little cart every, with the every yeah. liquor is, is there. You can make whatever drink you want in a stranger's yeah. house, you know. People, but no one, yeah, people but no one has a problem. Just, no one has a problem. Everyone's fine. There's a bucket <laughs> of fresh <laughs> ice cubes. There's always yeah, a bucket of fresh ice cubes. I was asking for white Russians, is I think that the extension of that gag. Yeah. Oh, they all have the um the carbonator thing to yeah the, yeah. the seltzer thing yeah seltzer thing yep. It's a neat two shot. Mm-hmm. It's not a split diopter, but you know it's just like close, it, close like, to a De Palma. Close. Yeah, like today it would be. Yeah, <laughs> but now it's just like oh, they just put these people in front of the camera. They got it pretty focused. Yeah. yeah it's pretty... He looks like Shatner there. A little yeah. Bit. Yeah. There are a lot of those guys. Yeah. <laughs> Century white guys. Just a lot of them. I like that this point of the movie hammers like gathering intelligence basically he's just mm-hmm. like becoming like i need to be smarter if i want to live through this <laughs> like that's his, his kind of like method perhaps i should detect i need to like figure this out i can't just be oh this walking schmuck. And punching oh, I lo- guys I, I love the this, this mortician he's such a schmuck <laughs> and he's very much like uh raiders the the nazi yeah yeah the co-hanger <laughs> Black hat yeah. guy, yeah. The yeah. cool guy when I, you know, who was the coolest m- villain ever when I was a kid. The, the Nazi one, yes. <laughs> like Tucker, Tucker, what I don't know. Someone on Twitter will correct us. I like that Raiders is all of one of our favorite movies, and we have no idea what this henchman's name is. Figures they made that guy. They were full. I got is such up. a good name. It's like why remember anybody else? <laughs> I had him. I had that guy. He had this cool leather trench coat that was one piece. He popped on his shoulder. The little yeah. guy even had the even had the little mm. scar. That was a cool. That was the figure I bought. But they didn't. Have it is like Tot. It's Tot. Yeah, Major Arnold Tot. Yeah. It's not a great name compared to Belloc. Belloc. And I, I don't even try to ask me who the, the other like German captain is that also gets his head melted in that movie. I can't hear yeah. him at all. That guy's in a lot more movies than the guy who plays. Yes. Well, yeah, because he has, you know, he has a face for playing military men and authority figures where, <laughs> where Spielberg's like, yeah, get right. Maybe Ronald Lacey. He looks creepy. When is he going to be used it again? I don't know. Ronald Lacey in a single other movie. Spielberg has a lot of people like that in his movies, right? No one else ever cast them. But him. Like the dad in AI. Who was that guy? That's a fun, yeah, you're you're entirely right when you say things like that. It's like there are a lot of like very specific character actors that he chooses because he knows what he's doing with them, but nobody, yeah. even with having a Spielberg film on their resume, doesn't seem to get them the job afterwards. Right, yeah. <laughs> Wide ranging commentary. I kiss me that touching all sorts of mm-hmm. Yeah, he's a weasel, this guy. Yeah. I, I wonder what his deal is. Well, I mean, th- I mean talk about wide ranging but look at Spielberg. yeah i love that when he breaks his hand uh but look at spielberg's films i mean there are ones that you know edge close as far as influences what he's bringing up something like There's more enjoyment that yancy mentioned earlier when he yeah. beat the guy yeah. that's like a perverse sexual thing you can't do that but you look at elements of some of the indies as far as framing shots or what have you where you can see where he's coming from as far as what he's pulling from from pulp stuff oh of course of course even the framing the framing of indiana jones the character in that one he's much more of a sort of yeah. shade 
is he morally, you know, is he like Princey Dobbs and yeah, more more for, compared to the sequels for sure. There's a not that, it's, not that it like descends because of that, but you know, you can look at, you can look at the way Indiana Jones is portrayed in the Raiders versus Last Crusade, where he's just a straight up swashbuckler. Yeah. But even in some of his latest films, it's like a, like I don't know, Bridge of Spies or Catch Me If You Can. There's like shades of things going on there amidst the very shininess of some of them. Well, Munich is. Munich, of course. Yeah, oh, I mean, yeah. Munich, <laughs> Munich or Minority Report are bleak as fuck when you just do the cinematography alone. Like. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, I've, and many other people, I'm sure, you know, for me, I consider Spielberg more on the, you know, his darker pictures because, you know, I, there's a lot more Jaws than there is ET. Yeah. In his oh, filmography. Yeah. And I think a lot of what popular culture thinks about Spielberg is entirely around A, E.T., and B, a bunch of films that he didn't actually direct, like The Goodies and Back to the Future, mm-hmm. or Gremlins, that he is associated with in terms of 80s pop culture. And, I mean, he, oh, present, he, he, also, Spielberg, yeah. say he also presents himself in a certain way that's... Oh, absolutely very genial like you know he yeah. seems like a friendly you know you know like scorsese seems in, scorsese's fun and he's great to yeah. listen to he also seems intense yeah <laughs> like he seems, yeah. A, seems a bit high strung sometimes where yeah. spielberg's <laughs> like oh, we just had a good well, time on set you know for a couple of decades that was cocaine um but yeah. <laughs> you said it not me um, oh, oh, oh here we go hold on <laughs> oh yeah here we go here it is <laughs> he's getting the what's it <laughs> this is so exciting <laughs> which is the best name for a macguffin ever by the way yeah the great <laughs> what's it like watching this for the first time, seeing him like, okay, they found the thing. Like, what's this? Go- like, my mind is not thinking, you know, contained nuclear bomb that's going to scream at you. Like, that's not <laughs> the thing. <laughs> that's the thing. It's not just the light. It's that it hisses when he opens it. It's like, what the fuck? <laughs> it's so crazy. And the other guy's face is just it, holy shit. Yeah. He was 30 years old before this scene. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just released a little bit of nuclear bomb, but not too much. Yeah, just enough to like scuff his, his life by thirty scuff, years. Scuff, he scuffed his arm a little bit. Let me write that Probably off. Life, but he'll never know. Well, also, know, it's in a box, and that's fine. Apparently, yes. But when I, I when I watched it a couple nights ago for this, and I the first time you do know, you see it there, I instantly recalled the scene where he's walking up to the the building and the guy's got the case and it's got it strapped around his head for some reason. I don't yeah, know why, Yeah, but I, I was recall, I immediately transported back to that scene because those trunks look similar, but there's, there's no correlation, but I don't know why. Like, I just like it's all the same store, you know? Yeah. I was just reminded of that moment for some odd reason. It's almost like a, we're not in Kansas anymore vibe here that at the end of this sleazy you know, LA detective story is a nuclear device, you know, mm-hmm. like it's such a bigger thing with the strength it. to blow up a beach house. It's it, <laughs> it, it, it's just such a wild turn where and I love it. Like, it's, yeah. Like, yeah. it's just jarring, but it, but it, it but it also like it gives you this like, you know, not too unsimilar to like Chinatown where it's like there's a larger world here and yeah. you cannot control it. Like you, you just get out and survive. <laughs> yeah. And this is, this is a film that where, you know, the, the private eye or whatever the hell he is at this point was wrong to try to solve it himself. And the authorities were right to tell him to buzz off and leave us alone. 
and that makes he, me curious if how many movies we should list that actually like what would it be if they did just buzz off and leave things yeah. alone how, how would like they have worked out three for example where forrest whitaker would have solved his wife's murder all on his own yeah. <laughs> interesting but even like siri like if Maltese multi falcon if humper bogart's like oh they shot my partner Okay, so this is the one I just don't need to worry about. Yeah. And like, just, just, just let like Peter Laurie and 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 uh, Green, uh, Green just him. like just do their own thing. And there's like, at the end of the day, they just find a fake thing and keep moving. I guess, right? They don't yeah. like nothing. Nothing really amounts from that. So, like, if what I don't know if Rick just treats Elsa like you know nothing special. It's like, yeah, here's a free drink, and I'll be in my office. Um, any other classic example of that? And obviously, this isn't a plot hole, it's just whatever it is. But you know, if Indiana Jones and Marion, you know, he saves her life, they leave the bar as it's burning, and they go off on vacation, and the rest of the movie pretty much transpires as is. Well, nothing, you know, yeah, they can't, can't find yeah. it to begin with. They're just going yeah. to the, dig into the desert the whole time. Yeah. <laughs> it isn't or, good to put in the hands of top men. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. But that just goes to show you that it doesn't. That that's not a thing. Then it doesn't really matter. Yeah. Of course not. Yeah, no, because you know, the characters don't know that when they're on it, their journey. It's right. it's Ford's argument for stagecoach. Why don't they shoot the horses? Because then there's no movie. Right. Yeah. Well, the, the thing <laughs> in the end, that's just such a stupid mystery. Like the there's the journey going on the journey. And at the end, he's pissed off about this exact thing. He's like, why did I go? You know? Yeah. I go well, out. Even, and, yeah, even before like, they open the thing, his arc is all no pun intended. His, the arc of his character, <laughs> like, the arc of his character is to come to understanding the power of the, of the, the arc yeah. to begin with. So it's like, yeah, we, yeah, we should fuck with this. It's crazy. What are we doing here? Don't I look mean, at that. <laughs> and again, this is not a criticism. The movies are what they are, but the only one of the four where he has a proactive role in the adventure is Double of Doom. Yeah, where he goes to a place there's and a mission, there's a, a stolen object. There's, well, there's a mission. He wants directly to directly saves lives. He has to, but he also wants to get these kids. Like he's yes. he's exploring this thing to get these kids back that have been exactly. stolen from an area. Um, Last Crusade's just greedy. <laughs> <laughs> I guess Crystal Skull is like a rescue thing like, of sorts as well because of that well-liked John Hurt character we all right. can't stop oh, talking yeah. about. Because John Connery <laughs> said no thank you. <laughs> I'm retired and I'm loving it. So what do you want me to, ah. you want me to drive around in the dirt somewhere? <laughs> no thank you, Stephen. Monkers. John Hurt. <laughs> <laughs> you know, John Rice Davis said no thank you. Sean Connery said no thank you. And oh, what if it was dead. a movie about Sala being possessed by aliens? <laughs> Could have got like short round to do that. Like, no, he was busy being Asian and not casting things. That was not allowed. Yes, right. that's, that was, that's how that was going. He doesn't remember short round. Are you crazy? Oh, look at that. There's oh, just a little bit of blood. Yeah. Maybe just spit up something. He was eating and they killed him. More likely scenario. <laughs> I was going to say something I forgot now. <laughs> All this that's going on right now. Um, <sighs> We're in the end game now. <laughs> I completely had a thought now. <laughs> We've got too, too, too many tangents stacked by each other. Um, no filter. Hmm. I guess I wonder, like in a movie like this, especially 55s, we've seen a lot of noir at this point. Are you, are, do you think audiences are still like 
curious like which characters are on what side of things or do they you know are they looking at someone like uh lily or i guess gabrielle and being like oh she's probably the villain and she's probably behind all this uh, if they care considering that there were like 50 episodes of detective shows every week on television yeah that's the other thing right, right? yeah yeah, yeah. I'm sure that even yeah i'm sure that every was plot... naked city on at this time the show version oh i'm sure yeah it had to be before this the show yeah yeah well and uh, you know i i don't know if audiences were knowledgeable slash aware enough to think well this is the major character who we haven't seen in like 20 no it's 58 it was 1958, really? so it was Naked not City? on yet. Yeah, Naked okay. City, 58 to 63. When's the, the movies before that? Then the movie yeah, yeah, like the movie's seven, fifty six. Mm-hmm. Yeah, before I think it's the forties, isn't it? The, Naked <clears> City, Barry, uh, the Naked City. Uh, nineteen forty eight. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Took a while. Get that legacy TV series going. <laughs> <laughs> no, even if they don't think that she's the villain, they're probably expecting to see her again. Sure. Now, do you think oh. that I always perceive that as a major change in, in audiences' temperaments? Do you think it was always a game of outsmarting the movie, or do you think back then it was? It was. I don't oh, think no, there's not always audiences that did that. You just didn't hear about it because there wasn't Twitter. Well, yeah. yeah, I mean, it's the same thing I say about trailers, where trailers give away the entire movie from back then. Yeah. Like, watch oh, trailer yeah. Casablanca, it tells you the entire story that happened, and you're just like, okay, so let's see the whole version of this. But granted, trailers are only seen when you see a movie. They're not seen on the internet or, you know, in, yes. in math and on TV. Like, you're not seeing trailers anywhere else except the theater. If so you were at a theater this time, you might have seen it more than once, though. They had sure. Revealed, you were there yeah. in the afternoon. And even then, a theater experience is... Well, that's not necessarily true. It's like kids would go to matinees or whatnot all the time. That's what you would do. <laughs> but but uh, you weren't paying that deep of attention, pausing, screen capping, well, yeah, keeping in like, mind what trailers do. So you're just like, oh, that looks like a fun adventure. And yeah, it's, B, a, it's a more ca- it's a more casual experience. It's not a yeah. it's not a thing to figure out. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's not a you know, it's a movie, not a puzzle box. That's a part of today's <laughs> audience is wanting to be ahead of and smarter than the movie by just sheer thing of like, here, let's tell you this. Or mm-hmm. I always thought that was just people wanting to, you know, when you go to the movies in LA, in LA, you feel like ninety percent of the people there assume they're going to have careers in Hollywood someday or want correct. To yeah, so they feel like their job is to is to show that they're better than the person who made the movie and they outsmarted the person and they should have the job instead. Right. So that it's hard to separate that from if this played in, you know, Chicago or somewhere in 1955, would an audience just sort of be sitting back and going with it? Or would there be those people who were trying to get ahead? I guess it's just, a, I'm sure that it's a mixture of both, but yeah, well, I mean, there's always yeah. going to be like a Weisenheimer in the audience that wants yeah. to like have a certain yeah. take on things or, you know, the beatniks or what have you. But I mean, casual audiences are casual audiences, right? You know, they don't care. The casual but, audiences now are pretty much trying to outsmart the movie. It's, it's, I, I would, yeah. I would, argue, I, I don't deny this, but I would say there's, you know, there's still the people that just watch Star Wars yeah. to watch Star Wars. There's contempt I mean, yeah. in Hollywood that wasn't always there. The last 50 years has been a lot of contempt for Hollywood. I don't think was there at the beginning. I don't know what changed or what changed it, but maybe it was Vietnam and just the whole general. I mean, that only goes so far when movies make like a billion dollars and it's not just a billion dollars worth of people that are snarky. But, but people treat movies like found objects now where they made the movie good by watching it because they were in a good mood and saw it with their friends. They don't really think about the work that went into it or didn't go into it. Well, if you're somebody that just watches movies to watch movies, it's it, you'd never thought about that. It's like the way I watch a sports game. 
yeah, I can appreciate the athletics and I can have a rooted interest in the outcome for one reason or another, but I'm not going to be, you know, knowledgeable enough to dissect the mechanics of the game as it was being played. And the example I was given, you know, Star Trek into darkness comes out, gets decent reviews, gets an A from cinema score, but certain portions of the fandom for reasons right or long do not like it. And it is declared the worst Star Trek movie ever by, you know, certain fan polls. And that narrative sticks, even though 90% of the general audiences either loved it or thought it was fine, whatever. Right. They saw it once or twice in theaters. They had a good time. They never thought about it again. And that's the same way with a lot of these, these big franchisee films that everybody well, yells at each other about on the internet. Well, and uh, like the, the art we've, of we've solved our keys question, by the way, yes. with this guy with Dr. Uh, Dr. Sobern, the, the art of movies and the interest in checking out how they're made dwindles, 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 because movies have become with the the movie crowd now like someone i saw someone recently saying like man there's this amazing light and sound documentary on disney plus why aren't people talking about it because they aren't interested because they're too busy in checking off boxes rather than hanging with the movie they just saw thinking about that or they're trying to get those quick hit things to talk about and yeah you gotta stream the next thing you gotta watch 10 more episodes of this thing to talk Mm -hmm. about it instead of to focus on the one thing you watch making ofs used to be tv specials and then they Mm -hmm. relegated to a cable thing to a bonus feature on a dvd to hope they get made or hope they make quality ones um documentary back of streaming but yeah like from star wars to jelly that aired on television um and now you get the the history of light and sound, which is a magical freaking six part documentary. That's just everything, but it's not to people because they're more worried about who's going to pop up in Mandalorian season three for a cameo rather than how did they do this? The, the art of the volume is more interesting than that to me, but I'm a film person, but there are film pe- people that tell you they're film people and not give a rip about that. It's about like, well, is, uh, so Dr. Afra going to show up in, in this? <laughs> <laughs> to, to get back to, I get, I, I agree with what you're saying completely to get back to this for a bit. Cause we're at this sort of climax here. Right. The we're dealing with the box a lot. Now the, what's it, the bomb thing. And I really like, um, cause now um Gabby Rogers. You're like, she's full on the evil character in this movie. Like that's what we're mm-hmm. getting revealed. But Everything is coming because of her obsession with this box now. Like the way her eyes are, she's she's constantly looking at it. <laughs> it's just it's drawing her in. And I really like it the way it's <clears throat> like we've already seen a tease of what this box is, and it's danger. Like we don't want more of it. Yeah. Uh, but I but like her, she like the obsession with her is right there, and it doesn't take long just to overcome like anything else in her life. She just wants this box. Uh, I love this closing death line that he has here. The uh, listen to me as if I were Cerberus barking with all his heads at the yeah. gates of hell. I will tell you where to take it, but don't open that box. Like, that's one we should use that just a daily lexicon. Uh, <laughs> I, I love his, 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 his I got shot face looks like more like dinner didn't agree with him. Yeah, he's, so <laughs> he's rolling his eyes in annoyance like, almost. Oh, ah, darn it. It's because of his box because he's like. I need to like get this out because the box is dangerous. <laughs> like I don't have time to die properly. <laughs> her, yeah, I like her smile. reaction. Of that's a creepy being... smile. Yeah, <laughs> it is so my type of girl. And you say she's supposed to be a lesbian. 
So interesting. Yeah, Ralph. Yeah, she's about certainly to immune to his germs. <laughs> I like how he's actually well, like he's showered, cleaned up, and ready to go for this final scene. He's been working he rugged. Climax he, works. Yeah, over this movie somehow. Dude, the close-ups here too. Like it's really raising the intensity. Another lost art. Look how much you got. She's got very British teeth. <laughs> Well, she's a uh, German, I believe. Yeah, okay. So, you know, she's European. European teeth. Okay. A low character. She didn't have time to brush her teeth. And she just shoots him for shits. You know, yeah. whatever. Very but as, a, as opposed to the good doctor. Well, she didn't mess around. Like, my, you know, yeah, exactly. like, I could it's talk very... his ear up, but no, he's he's going to try to stop this. So well, my, my camera's better than that. He can he can withstand a bullet shot to the gut. <laughs> he can just get her to walk that off. Rub some dirt on it. His hammer's made of steel. And here we go. This right here, this prolonged bit where she has to like unravel this box. <laughs> and we're sitting here thinking, we saw what happened the first time. Don't open that. But the doctor it just barely opened. It barely opened. And <laughs> Don't open gonna... it more. And there's no sound right here either, right? There's no like it's all it's very silent in this whole sequence. There's no like the music's <laughs> very low, at least. Uh and it's it's hot. Don't open a box that's hot. <laughs> that's not a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> at least get oven mitts. Yeah. And she's going for it. You have any idea that that, that that's this sort of existentially ruinous technology could be in the hands of just thugs and idiots is also frightening. You know, that, I gotta I open keep, it all the way. She keeps opening, and soon she's like looking at it in terror, and still like I can't oh, resist opening this more. I wanna be <laughs> great shots here. My camera. The fire. I like they even have like a little dummy of her being on fire. I like that shot right there. Oh, no, that's horrifying fire. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Because they had it's like we need to get something in there. They put an actual person. (laughs) And that's how the novel ends. And they wanted to keep that shot even while cutting out. I don't know all the details, but again, the the novel had no nuke in it, though. No, it was drugs and the mob and all that. jazz. So the whole nuclear subplot that makes this movie infamous was, again, it was a workaround to get around the haze code so they could have this climactic shot of her setting herself on fire. That's interesting. This is wild. Like this whole thing right now. Like there's a room that has like an A bomb going off, and my camera's is stumbling around trying to get this, around. This is not how the Maltese Falcon ends. <laughs> <laughs> I had to think that somebody walked out of the theater like this is way better than Maltese Falcon. Something actually happens. <laughs> Maltese Falcon has been dethroned. I yeah, have seen Maltese. Kiss Me that Deadly. That movie was just Peter Lorre in a room for thirty minutes. Who wants to see that? <laughs> the big sleep can sleep the fishies. Yeah. Tri- are, this triple indemnityed. Yeah. <laughs> it's an abstract rendering of the bomb, just this flickering light in a in a in a, in a suitcase. Good that, use of location because you have like a real house, and then I assume like a fake house. You were blowing something behind up. The a model. House. It's probably a model. They actually detonated a nuke. I'm saying, yeah, a fake a model. Yeah, right. Stuff that was mysteriously cut out of the movie. Yeah, so this, yeah, so this is all out. This is all gone from the movie and the in the other version of it. We're just mm-hmm. not seeing any of this, which is wild. Yeah, it just it just. <laughs> apocalyptic they're still on the beach oh it is i'm not saying it's not it's just it's wild to think that the movie just ended in the house (laughs) they're like that that's it because i I think the implication is that nothing's gonna keep burning forever oh yeah it's such a it's just such a weird choice we're like let's not have the actors in the last scene it's like this (laughs) what did we save here and now we blew this house up and they're sort of returning to the sea for and even it's not like there's much here it just ends (laughs) that's it yeah like real movies should. The water's purity. We're I done. Guess. We have nothing. <laughs> no one hell of a the end, too. 
It's a great the end. That's why if you just put a little question mark after that, he great. You want credits? Go see the movie again. They're at the beginning. (laughs) Oh, I remember what I was going to say earlier. It was the it was the same logic of the what if they just walked away? What if Walter Neff just walked in the house, saw Barbara Stanwyck? He's like, no, I'm good. Walks out. (laughs) 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 She tries to do her thing. Find somebody else. Yeah, this many Edward G. Robinson just become best friends for the rest of their lives and have a good life together. All right. Last Kiss Me Deadly. That was good. We did it. <laughs> that's, a, that's just a good ass movie. We'll do more really old movies. Brits yeah. Nation. If you want to do an awful truth one day, I will totally do the awful truth. That's no, a great. They, we're not lacking in a number of smaller and uh, older movies that we could do. Uh, that said, September. I mean, well, said September's got you know a weird list of anniversaries as far as more recent movies. Uh, we have what we have. Um, what, uh, Princess Bride turns like what thirty five or something like that. Um, Last of the Mohicans, uh, Spencer, and the game uh, turns 20. LA Confidential turns 20. Ooh, keep the noir train running. Keep the door train running. <laughs> I mean, with we could have did this in March, but like James Conn having passed, the Godfather still did turn, you know. People are waiting for our commentary on the Godfather uh, or, 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 or Misery, you know, get another con movie. Rollerball. Jonathan. Jonathan. Um, what else? Um, <sighs> um uh, Pinocchio turns like wh- what would that be? A gajillion 80? <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> well, that's 1940, so 40, yeah, 82, 80. That's right. Well, <laughs> oh, because in 1940, it was 40 long. exactly. Why did I put it down? There? I believe so. I think Bambi is 41. Maybe got a re release. Dumbo is 42, I think. I think I'll have to look this up. Oh no, I know why because the because Zemeckis is Pinocchio. Comes yeah, yeah. Out next month. That's, oh, why, yeah. that's what you're referring. That's to. why I put it on the list. Yeah, okay. Uh, Avatar gets re-released. Next I would month. love to do an old Disney movie. That'd be fantastic. The Pinocchio. Pinocchio. Can, we, like can we do that at the theater in 3D? Avatar, sure. Record yeah. a live audio commentary. Yeah. <laughs> do like on a Wednesday morning. Why are these guys there? talking the whole time? <laughs> <laughs> we could do that. We could rent out a theater just do an Avatar. <laughs> No, Pinocchio sounds like actually that'd be kind of fun to do, actually. Hmm. Anyway, we'll determine all this in due time, but that is going to wrap it up for this month's Out Now commentary track for Kiss Me Deadly. Uh, let's go over where everybody can find more of your guys' work. Um, yeah, see, anything you want to plug? Uh, Milky Way Blues. I'm on Facebook, uh, Yancey Burns, Twitter, Yancey Jack, and uh, on, on these fine commentaries uh, often. Yeah. Uh, Scott Mendelson. Uh, Forbes.com. Um, at Scott Mendelson on Twitter, and that's pretty much it. Brandon Peters, uh, at Brandon 4KUHD on Twitter and Instagram, um, uh, and uh, the Brandon Peters Show.com, uh, my podcast, which Scott has been on all summer long, going through the films and times of 1982. And we're about ready to wrap up, so uh, get in there, listen. You will yeah. not believe the shocking season finale. Yes, we're about we're about to record some extra stuff for it, so that'll be uh, fun. So get your fries and gravy, and have we watch. been renewed yet? Uh, <laughs> we've got five <laughs> scripts for the next season, but nothing. Look out! It's the cancellation season. bear. Right, <laughs> that joke doesn't work anymore. It's been five years or so since that was anyway. Anyway, but yeah. <laughs> Anywhere podcasts are found, YouTube channel. If you want to like look at Scott and I as we do it, be my guest. Uh, yeah, <laughs> put your put your magic to the test. 
You can find everything I do at thecodezeek.com. I also write for Leave Entertainment and Why So Blue. I'm on Twitter at Aaron's PS4. This commentary and all the episodes of our podcast uh, can be found on iTunes, Audio Spotify, Stitcher, where you can find podcasts. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And yeah, uh, Scott, Brandon, Nancy, thank you very much for joining me this month. That was fun. That was good. That was really fun. We should do more really old movies. Yeah. Okay. Well, we'll keep that. In, I mean, Pinocchio is right around the corner. That case. And, Nos- and, and Nosferatu. And Nosferatu for October. October. Yeah. yeah. So then that's going to do. We can do week. another Godzilla. I'll bring Ethan along. I mean, I'm not going to oppose this. That's going to do it for this week's, this month's commentary. <laughs> so until next time, so long and goodbye. Thank you for listening. The Brandon Peters Show is a Creative Zombie Studios production. Produced by Brad Shoemaker and Brandon Peters. Written and edited by Brandon Peters. Announcer vocals by Jessica Osman. Theme song by Metavari. Web design and show art by Brad Shoemaker with Brandon Peters. All music and clips featured in the episode are property of their respective studios and no infringement is intended. Additional information on this and other episodes at brandonpetershow.com. For any inquiries, press opportunities, or sponsorship, contact mail at brandonpetershow.com. The show is available on Apple Music, Spotify, or anywhere podcasts are found.